for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When it comes to developing your hunt plan and identifying the areas where elk could be found, e-scouting is an incredible tool. But what good is a tool if you don't know how to use it? Where do you even begin? What in the heck do you even look for? Can you really locate where elk are going to be? There's a ton of questions when it comes to e-scouting. So let's get busy with some answers. Oh, and just so you know, we brought in the big dog for this one. Joining the Elk Bros crew tonight is our special guest and e-scouting guru, Mr. Mark Livesey. Mark is the author and creator of his Treeline Academy's e-scouting masterclass. And you can bet the house that Mark will be bringing it tonight. So, guys and gals, let's just get ready to find us some elk. That discussion, our Elk Bros shout-outs, and questions from our awesome Elk Bros mailbox. So, my friends, pull up a chair, adjust your volumes just right, and welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting, brought to you by ElkBros.com, with your host, Gilbert Ornelas, and elk hunting coach, Joe Gillian. You want to hunt elk? They live to hunt elk. Their goal is to share with you what they have learned grinding it out for over 35 seasons doing what they love. So come on into camp and set a spell. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunters. Hello there, everyone. If it's your first time with us, glad to have you. Hope you enjoy the show. And as always, for our blue collar hunters following our show and grinding it out with us every week, welcome back to Elk Camp. I'm Gilbert Ornelas, the host of your show, coming to you live from Spring, Texas, 
And from Las Cruces, New Mexico, we've got the Elk Bros coach in the house, the Gila Ridge runner himself, Mr. Eric Aragon. And from Cuesta, New Mexico. That's right. We got the legend himself sits on my shoulder all the time, Mr. R.C. Knox, the real cowboy. And from Cimarron, we've got our elk hunting coaches in the house. We've got the ninja, Leroy Chavez. And WWJGD, what would Joe Gillia do's in the house? And joining us at Elk Camp today, let's give a warm Elk Bros welcome to tonight's special guest. In 30 years of elk hunting, he spent two-thirds of that traveling all the way from Missouri to multiple western states chasing his elk hunting addiction. His e-scouting techniques came out of his necessity to be an efficient and as effective as possible while elk hunting. Y'all, the information you are about to learn comes from the school of hard knocks and experience. Friends, let's welcome the Topo Map Terror, Mr. Mark Livesey himself to Elk Camp. What's up, bro? Big Mark. Welcome, Mark. Hey, Topo Map Terror, man. Topo Map Terror. I, I kind of like it. I might have to print some shirts with that on it. Hey, man, we get a kick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Mark. I was kind of wondering there for a moment if I was going to get a cool, fancy uh, a name or not. So I guess that's been settled. <laughs> Topo <laughs> Terror. Yes. Hey, bro, man, just like He's WWF, a- we're going to be tossing each other around in this thing, man. Welcome to our Elk Bro Camp. Thanks. Yeah, Glad to be here, guys. Yeah, Glad to be here. I'm excited to have you on, man. I've been I was digging around your stuff, trying to figure out what's going on. So oh. you got some con you got some content, buddy. It's it I'm excited. It's gonna be really cool. Well, Mark for so that uh everybody that's joining us, if they haven't heard of Mark Livesey, um it, because you have been a ghost now for a few months, right? Yeah. That's right, that's right. I this is the first this is my first podcast in two thousand twenty two. And wow. it's probably it's probably my first one in Four or five months, to be totally honest with you. Wow. Well, yeah. we feel privileged to have you, brother. Yeah, welcome, to, welcome to the Elk Bros Elk Camp, man. Uh, this is what we do, man. We enjoy Elk Camp together. Joe and the rest of the guys, we were, you know, when we first started Elk Hunt together, heck, we'd see each other once a year and we're like, man, how can we, how can we extend this thing out and, uh, you know, talk about Elk Hunt and stuff like that? And Joe just, popped up and said, man, you know, there's a thing called a podcast. What do you think about that? I said, well, hell, Joe, they pay me to talk. So, heck, yeah, man, I'll talk leg off a wooden Indian. Let's get to work. So, Mark, we uh, we we glad to have you, man. And tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and how this all arrived from your East County. Well, you kind of mentioned a little in your introduction, which was probably the best introduction I've ever gotten. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm from, aims to please, baby. So I'm from Missouri. I grew up, uh, in Missouri, you know, pretty much in the center of Missouri, whitetail hunted since I've been nine, killed my first whitetail with a bow at nine and, um, been going since, uh, I've killed a lot of really nice whitetails and, uh, when in my early twenties, I was working for a company and my boss was a huge whitetail hunter and he says, Hey, what about going elk hunting? And I said, Yeah, man, I never seen an elk, but, uh, sounds good to me. And, uh, 
we we got we drove out to Colorado in a minivan, a two wheel drive minivan, <laughs> and lost lost all the hubcaps, multiple flat tires as you can expect, and uh, actually killed a cow elk on my first hunt. Oh, wow. And awesome. um, I was I was hooked. I was I was hooked from that day forward. And like you mentioned, this will be my thirty third. I think my thirty third year coming up. And the far majority of those years, except for the past six, um, I've been driving from Missouri. And uh, I used to spend in Missouri, I used to come out at least twice a year, sometimes once if work got hectic, but usually, usually, usually try to make two trips. I spend 20 days elk hunting a year. I just loved it. And now this last year, I was, I was just, my wife and I were just talking about this. Uh, I've, I spent in 2021, I spent a hundred, about 127 days in the tent and, um, and about 60 some of those days were elk hunting. Oh, nice. So, um, it was pretty incredible year. Um, I got to hunt a lot of great places and, um, chased a lot of elk this year and, um, and, and, you know, and now I branch into bear hunting, mule deer hunting, lots of things since I've moved out here, but, uh. My passion, my love still elk. That's my number one go-to. So, you know, like you mentioned, coming from Missouri with the, as much elk hunting as I did, there, I didn't have any time for boots on the ground like a lot of guys. And I had to develop techniques and strategies to help me plan these hunts and get efficient. And just over the years, I just honed and refined. And I'm a technology guy anyway. So I don't know if you guys, how old you guys are, but a couple of you look pretty close to my age. I'm, I'm getting up there now. So I paid $399 for Google Earth when it first came out. I was one of the first elk hunters probably to use Google Earth. <laughs> and, um, it was a game changer. Absolutely. And so, and so now there's so many tools and so many things that, that are available. And I really was, I really became an elk hunter kind of at the right time because I went from my first hunts, I literally was compass and topographic map, right. to now all these hunt applications, Google Earth, in-reaches. I'm talking to my wife on hunts. I mean, it's just all this technology has changed the landscape on elk hunting. And so I've been just blessed to kind of live through all of that and right. transition through all that. So I have an appreciation for some of this technology that some of these young hunters kind of take for granted. And uh, so anyway, that's kind of how it developed and how it's kind of molded along the years. Yeah. No, and, you know, when you were talking about that, I can remember, gosh, uh, 10 years ago taking my son-in-law on his first elk hunt and trying to decide where we were going to be. So um was on Google Earth from where, you know, being able to look from one shooting point to another where I thought the animals were coming down. And it was amazing. It's a, it, it's almost like we wrote the script and it happened that way. He ends up shooting his first cow elk. But because we were able to look at an area we had never been in there in 3D to be able to look from a certain viewpoint at different angles and know where we would have a shot, where we wouldn't, where, where we would be able to see into, um, what most likely were the ridges they were going to come down. Yeah, all of that stuff, man. And, you know, <laughs> you, you can remember having those maps. You have it and you're trying to fold it 
it all up, get in your bag. You wear it so much after the folds, it gets all those little holes in every one of the corners where you fold it. So when you open it up, you you know you end up with blood got, all over it. You know, <laughs> got lots of stories about that. Oh, yeah. I used to use so I used to use packing tape. I would take packing tape and strip. Those, those all the way across um, topo mats, make them as waterproof as I could. Yep. Um, and I seemed like every elk area that I picked was always in the corner of four topo mats. Yep. And <laughs> so I had to kind of like tape them all together. Uh, and I would always kill elk off of the map. Yeah. Um, like I'd walk off the map and it was, you know, those days. Oh man, I can't tell you how many days I went to the library and checked out hundreds of maps, oh, figured yeah. out which ones I wanted to buy, you know, all that stuff. I'm just very thankful that those days, I do not, I do not relish those days of, uh, of e-scouting and hunt planning back in those. I but, like it the way we got it now. But the, <laughs> the thing it did do for you then was you really learned how to understand, you could look at a topo and look at where you were at and you learn to make that connection. You learn how to That's see right. from 2D to 3D. I mean, it, uh, right. it really kind of cultured that out back then where, you know, because, and, and we'll talk more about this when we get into the show here, but man, you can look in some of these applications, especially after you went in some of our topos that were really, really well defined and you look in some of these apps that, you know, an area might look like, oh, it's not too bad to go in there. What the heck? It's only, it's only a quarter inch on that thing, man. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I call it distance. I call that in the course. I call that distance creep. And, yeah. um, yeah. guys, it's real easy to hunt these mountain ranges when you're looking at your screen. No doubt. And, uh, especially now some of these apps, certain ones, and we're going to talk about this, I hope is. Huh? Oh, yeah. They have summarized our hybrid topos now. Yeah. And so you're talking 40 foot contours, even 60 foot contours. Mm -hmm. And, and you just don't sometimes get a full <laughs> picture of the steepness no, that you're actually dealing you with. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, 90% so, of the time. Yeah. So there's, there's actually quite a bit of strategy that I talk about, um, dealing with that and getting used to un and understanding what interval levels you're working at. And, um, and all that kind of stuff. But you're right. I, guys that didn't work are girls, women. They yeah, didn't really use guys the, is all inclusive. I say no, guys, but you know, I'm running into tons of women elk oh, hunters yeah. nowadays. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, well, my wife being one. And they, when they, if, if they didn't really grow up using printed topography, 7.5 minute maps, they really don't have, sometimes they don't really have a solid understanding of, contours and slope degrees mm -hmm. and and just like you said joe the the being able to visualize the terrain right and i think i take that for granted i think a lot of us that yeah. have done it take it for granted because a lot of new people that take my course are beginners ask me about that all the time to be honest i get asked so much and i think i'm going to go back and i'm going to do another course it's going to be like a little mini course mm -hmm. that if you want to do it as kind of a prerequisite where it is basically understanding topography at a high level, you know, saddles, hills, valleys, yeah, right. ridges, really, and, and, you know, convex and concave and, and the angles of the lines, the density of the lines, and being able to know what the distance between the lines are, the minor ticks and the major ticks. And, um, because I don't cover that a lot in the course, because I just kind of assume 
that you have that background as a starting point, but I'm finding out that a lot of the newer hunters, they don't always have that. Yeah. They don't always have that. Yeah. You can, you can almost end up very easily looking at it in reverse where the, you know, the concave and (laughs) you think it's going uphill and it's going downhill. That's right. Absolutely, man. You can have that happen. So my man, I'm anxious to get into this tonight. So what we're going to do is we're going to head over to our elk mailbox right now. And we've got a, we've got a letter from John Tucker from Los Angeles, California here. And John says, First of all, thanks for all you do. I never miss a show. My question is about preparing for my hunt. And this was, I pulled this one out because, man, it, it really went really well with what we were doing tonight. He said, when I'm e-scouting and developing my hunt plan, how far should my areas, my plan A, B, C, etc., be from each other? One mile, five miles, or does it matter? If I bump into hunters, and this is like part B to it here, if I bump into hunters uh, at plan A, should I move to plan B right away? Okay, so that's the question that we got right now on there. Anybody want to start off with that first part of it? Well, Mark, since you're the guest man and this is your specialty, e-scouting. How far should those areas, those plan A, B, C? I mean, people are asking for this, but really the the big answer is depends, right? Right. It depends. But, you know, so in the course, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about e-scouting, but that's – I would say that e-scouting is about 50%, maybe 60% of the course. Mm -hmm. The rest of the course is really understanding – Realities, limitations, and core hunt areas and hunt planning. It's specific, very specific to what this question was. I spend a great deal of time on this. And so when he first question was the hunt areas and man, he is dead on. So when you develop a hunt area, the way I like to do it is it requires a physical move. If you're just going to hike further down the trail, right? I call that an extension of the same hunt area. Absolutely. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But usually when I talk about separate hunt areas, usually I got to go back to my rig. I got to make a move, a physical move. It could be five miles, could be 50 miles, could be halfway across the state. Depends on your tag, what unit. It, that, there's a lot of depends on that. But I usually develop for every hunt plan that I do for a seven to 10 day hunt. I have a minimum of four hunt areas worked out four. Right. And one, and one of those is always a radical change in elevation. And one of those is always a base camp operation, meaning I, I have llamas. So I pack in with llamas. So, you know, seven to 10 to 20 miles, Whatever, whatever I'm doing, but I'll always have a hunt area that I can hunt from the vehicle. So if I twist my ankle or I have a problem or my partner has a problem, our whole hunt isn't ruined. We can re, we can reorganize and spend a few days just hunting, you know, from a base camp. Now, if you're hunting from a base camp already, then so be it. But the, the elevation one is important. Because I don't know how many of you guys have had this happen, but you get out there, you get snow events, you get bad, you get super dry up high. There's no food high. You need to relocate a little lower or vice versa. You know, some of that's really hard to pre-plan. And so um, particularly in Colorado with the super high elevations, I 
absolutely have multiple, maybe two, maybe three of those at different elevation zones. Yeah. So, yes. The the reason that I said depend, too, is it depends a lot, too, on the type of state and the type of topography you have in that state. Like you talked about Colorado, and Colorado has a unique thing. Like if 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 I'm OTC, I mean, I can have – one unit over here and have multiple areas within that unit. And then I might have other places that could be 10, 15, 20 miles away because you have that option. Whereas in New Mexico, once you've been assigned a hunt unit, well, shoot, that hunt unit could be 44,000 acres. It could be 60,000 acres. It could be 22,000 acres. So now your plan A, B, C, and D might mean a four-wheel four-wheeler ride from an area that you're hunting and now to another part of that particular unit so you know it it, that's where i say the depends is because it you know you have to make that move and you're you're totally right man if i'm hunting an area and i'm not finding them here and i'm just going to hike this far over here i'm still hunting in the same area but if i'm not finding them in a particular zone where i have to get on that bike and i got to go a few miles now i'm in a different plan whereas you go to colorado you go to different places now you're hopping in the truck like you said and going and we did exactly that this year right guys we we had four areas absolutely ended yep. up, we pulled stakes quick really five yeah. really five and yeah we we uh we we laid boots down and <clears throat> made a couple of made one day scouting and then joe decided he wanted to get up like at two o'clock in the morning and leave and go somewhere else and he just kind of had this premonition and <clears throat> He took out, we all woke up and went, where the hell did Joe go? You know, and, uh, he, he told, uh, I believe he told Cole that he was going over this one unit. And so me and RC went in another spot and, <clears throat> you know, we found some help, but we also found like thousands of people. Yeah. And, uh, Joe came back and he had videos of some awesome encounters and he's like, boys, I know we set camp up and everything, but man, I just, I think this is the right place for us to be. So that's what we, we broke camp down uh, in the middle of the, of the day. We hunted over where Joe thought we were going to go, left our camp there. Opening morning, we go and hunt over there and then forego that afternoon to come and break our camp down. And we broke camp, moved over to where we were going to hunt. And it's pretty good ways away too, Joe was about. 10, 12 miles. Hour and a half, man. Yeah. Well, yeah. Hour and a half as the crow flies, probably only about 15, 20 miles. But as you know, it was an hour and a half that we had to move around over there, but it was absolutely the right thing to do. Burn a half day of hunting, but man, at the end of the day, it was, it was definitely the right thing to do. And you know, the last part of that question, Joe, where he says, if I bump into a hunter, do I move to plan B uh, right away? And I'm going to tell you right now, I can't tell you how many times Joe and I and Chev and RC and I bumped into a hunter and in, I don't know, 250, 300 yards, boom, we're in elk, you know, so, uh, don't let that spin you out, man. Uh, yeah. wish that guy well and, you know, uh, shake his hand, uh, make sure he's hunting into the wind and not <laughs> hunting with the wind up his ass and, uh, you know, help him out if you can and then wish him the best of luck and then move forward. I mean, we've made a lot of cool acquaintances and great friends, uh, by bumping into guys in our hunting area. I mean, they're doing the same thing you are. They're trying to find elk, you know, 
So when some of those guys are locals and they know a heck of a lot about that area and uh, they can help you too, you know? So I, I don't, I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater already. Now, if I, I imagine if I hunt, bumped into 25 guys, well, yeah, time, time to roll. But, uh, you know, just one guy probably, I probably just wish him well and he's on, man. Well, well, Mark, you're, you're in it, you know, you talk about you're packing back in with, with llamas, man. You got the llama drama going on. So I, I imagine how, how, how do you react to what, I mean, what ends up being too much pressure for you to where you pull up? Well, you know, again, I hate to say that the word depends all the time. It kind of depends. Yeah. I'll give you a couple of examples, but you know, I'm more concerned. To be totally honest with you, when I go to an area to hunt and there's nobody there, <laughs> uh, in, in today's world, uh, with information that's available as it is, if I go to a trail and there ain't a single vehicle, or, or I'm like, huh. I either am, yeah. I'm in God's country or I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm in no so, country. Yeah. You know, very, very few times are you going to run into an absolute buttload of elk. And have zero people. Yeah. I mean, now I don't mean like you can't outwalk them, you can't work around them yeah. or whatever, but I mean zero people. So an example is Colorado, I hunted with a buddy of mine that I didn't do any of the prep work. It was his spot, but he just kept telling me, Mark, you're going to freak out when you get to the trailhead. Don't. He goes, where we're going, we're not, there won't be anybody there and their elk are going to be there. I said, all right, dude, I'm cool. And he, and then we're driving in that, that morning and he says the same thing. And I'm like, dude, I, it's okay. We made the corner. <laughs> I've been in some pretty crowded trailheads before. Okay. We turned the corner and I'm like, what, what's going on? He goes, that's the trailhead. I'm like, what? I mean, there were at least, I'm not exaggerating, at least a hundred rigs. No. At least a hundred. Buses, horse like trailers, motor coaches. There was, yeah. there was, the trailhead was so packed that these guys were taking, uh, cordless drills and drilling into the dirt road to pitch their stakes on, they had, they had converted the road to one lane. There were so many tents. <laughs> and I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? And it had been raining, so it's muddy. These, there were some outfitters there, and there's, I mean, everybody. There were guys that had trucks. There was one road that was open for a couple miles. It was so muddy, there's no way you could drive it. But they had brought in these paddle tires, like, you know, mud running tires. Yeah. And they were changing up their normal truck tires to these when we got there so that they could get back where nobody else could go. So we roll up with these llamas, two trailers full of llamas, and <laughs> There's obviously no llamas there, and uh everybody's looking at us, and we finally find a place, and we walked, we packed in eight miles on that trip, and uh we were in there ten days, and I never saw a person, not a single person, and probably saw two thousand head out, two thousand head out. Wow. And, uh, it was outrageous. What was that exactly? <laughs> yeah. The key was, the problem was, here's the problem. It was about almost 4,000 feet up, and it was on this mesa. There was not a stitch of water, not one drop. So, and the nearest water is about 1,800 foot drop. So we, we took 12 llamas in. We dedicated six of them to carrying only water. Wow. So the llamas carried enough water for us and them for 10 days. We actually ended up pouring water out. 
and to come down. And That's a lot uh, of water. But the, without the water, though, the, see, the elk, 1,800 feet was nothing. Yeah. But the hunters, the backpackers couldn't do it. The horse guys surely couldn't do it because they had to have water for their horses. So that spot was very unique for that much pressure. And what ended up happening, I think, personally, is all those guys and all them, they just kept pushing those elk up onto that mesa. Right. And every day we were there, there was just more and more elk just showing up. And so, I mean, it's kind of a long-winded, but I just wanted to say, you have to measure it carefully. And a lot of it depends on your capabilities. If you're hunting from the trailhead, like, you, you know, you got a base camp, you don't want a lot of dudes camping around you because you're walking the same trails. You know, that's one case where I wouldn't want to be around a bunch of people. But if you're going to the trail and you're backpacking in and you know you're fit and you know you can get five or six miles and you know you can get off trail, I don't worry about two or three cars being there. I don't worry about it at all. And like you said, there's a reason those guys are there, especially if you start looking around license plates. In Montana, when I pull up and there's there's five cars and four of them are Montana, I'm like, okay, this might not be such a bad spot. Um, so anyway, that's my overview of it. And that was a great question. Well, I get those question. questions a lot. Yeah. And we're, you know, we're so used to hunting in high use areas anyway. Um, because we don't have a lot of choice on how far we can go in some of our units. And you got to deal with what you have. You got to dance with the girl that brought you, man. And that's, that's all you can do. So uh, a lot of times that means, um, you know, especially if it's a high use area, the elk have acclimated to that. Either they, you know, because it's not like in some states, in some areas, in some units, it's not like they can just go disappear. Like in Colorado, there's a lot of, a lot of mountains, a lot of country, yeah. you know, oh, a lot nice. of wilderness. There's, they can go over here and here and here. And a lot of these places, man, it's not the case. It's surrounded by population. It has ranches. It has people running cattle. It has all these different things happening in some of these areas. And so these elk have learned just to move where they want to go by getting around the people that are in their way. They don't disappear. Well, yeah. Well, especially all you guys from New Mexico, you guys from New Mexico, those elk, it blows my mind how they move around the people. Yep. And how they get to water holes and how they learn to come in the middle of the day and how yeah. they just all the things they do. And if you're hunting New Mexico, it's a radical different operation Absolutely. than hunting Colorado. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, it's this pressure situation. So when I did the course, I did a lot of research on elk and pressure. I read every research study that's ever been done. And believe it or not, there's actually been a lot of research done in that area. But overall, elk, they have found that elk do not like human pressure. They will seek out steeper country. They'll seek out less roaded country, no established trails on the other sides of rivers. They'll swim rivers. Elk will do what they can to avoid pressure. Mule deer are the exact opposite. Right. They work around the pressure. Mule deer will hide. They'll become nocturnal. They'll, they'll just be on the outskirts. They'll stay in thicker cover around, but they tend to not, unless it gets nutso, they, they tend to not shy from the pressure. And so I thought that was super interesting when I started. I never realized I always knew elk would stay away, but I was really surprised with the mule deer. And, um, but it makes sense, you know, to me now that, 
you know, all the years that I've been doing it and started thinking about it and I started reading those studies. I'm like, man, that just makes so much sense. And, uh, and what, you know, I'll, I'll just, this is a great place to add this is so many hunters, elk hunters particularly spend so much time on established trails. Yeah. You asked me, and this is going to come up later. You asked me some questions on the, the mistakes people make. One of the top ones people make in my mind is they never leave the freaking trail. They hike in, they call from the trail, they hunt from the trail, and they're nervous of navigation. Whatever the case, whatever reason they have for not venturing very far from the trail is directly responsible for low success. And we're going to talk more about that. We're going to hold that thought because we're going to get there. I want to revisit that because you're exactly right. And and I just want to make sure that, John, that you understand that, you know, it, you've got to read the situation you're in and you've got to read what these people are doing just like mark said a lot of these people are just staying on trails and sometimes those sweet spots if everybody's going back yeah here's what happens you have people that are going to go that have those fears are only going to go a mile mile and a half off of anything and you got those people that are going to want to get as deep as possible so they're going back there that five six seven miles well if you have everybody doing that those elk learn where the sweet spots are and sometimes that's mile three you know what I mean? So, you know, a, a great example for us is this year we were killing elk within two miles of camping areas that most people were driving right by the elk and going deeper and further and higher. So you just got to locate. They're going to go where people aren't going, where they're not making a ruckus. Now, yeah, you add to that pressure a little bit, but... You know, when they see a when they see the wagon train coming in, <laughs> they know where to go to, man. So awesome, Gil. Let's get rocking so we can get to this, man. I know we're itching. Absolutely, guys. Well, you know what time it is. Shout it's time for our Elk Bro Shout Out. Shout out to a few cities with the most listeners topping our charts this week, Joe. Yeah, buddy. And before we get there, we want to thank those folks giving us those incredible reviews on Apple Podcasts. You know, I, I, just a, a show ago, I was like, man, we're not getting no reviews. And then three of them popped in there. I guess somebody wanted to help us out. Y'all, we love to see those reviews, man. Tell us what we're doing, what we're not doing. Just don't be nasty about it, right? But we like hearing from you. Yeah. <laughs> we got one from John Child, and uh, John's one of our number one followers, man, and he's the owner of Spectre Hunting. You can go find Spectre Hunting on IG. They're, they're incredible. Go check them out over there. Uh, Dalton Heredia from Steady Sights Outdoors. Look here. He says, <laughs> Luis, don't let any of these cats tell you you're not the VM leader. Uh, Luis isn't here, man, so we're, we're going to have us a new election. Is what we're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> and then for all them Venezuelans are wanting a new election over there. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, man, uh, Fisher King. It looks like Luis was on everybody's mind, man. He yeah. says, uh, he said, it's like sitting around the fire with hunting legends, uh, except Luis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought that was awesome, man. man. Yeah, Manano has to be Manano's baby. best friend right there. Yeah, <laughs> Fisher yeah, King, Fisher. buddy. That's Manano's cousin. <laughs> Fisher King, that's just. He probably you know, is. Cousin. <laughs> I'm also Dude, he glad probably he... sent that in. 
Manano probably sent that in from a hoaxy email, man. <laughs> Remember, Grinders, you guys can be part of our show. Just send us a 15 to 20 second shout out video telling us who you are, something special about where you live, and send it to me at my email. That's Joe, J-O-E, even I can spell that, at elkbros.com. Guys, remember, show your face and celebrate your place, man. So we want to get some of those rolling in here. Chav, rock. Okay. All right. This week's top listening city is the third largest city in Arizona and is known for its stunning views of the Superstition Mountains and it and its sometimes insufferable heat. And I can attest to that. It's hotter than Hades down there. <laughs> the the a- ancient Hohokam natives inhabited the area some 2,000 years ago. The name Hohokam means all used up or the departed ones. They built the largest and most sophisticated canal system in the prehistoric world, with many of the original canals still being used today and providing water to an area of over 110,000 acres. And this is in Mesa, Arizona. Mesa, Arizona in the house. Hey, shout out to Mesa. (laughs) Big Arizona Bulls in the house. Yeah, we actually have two cities from Arizona in our top listening group this time, man. awesome. That's way cool. Well, Joe, this next top listening city is Downriver from Detroit metropolitan area and is located west of the Detroit liver, the river, not liver, river and (laughs) east of the Detroit metropolitan airport. It's just north of Flat Rock, Michigan, which a a good friend of mine lives in. The founding location of Hungry Howie's Pizza, a regional pizza chain with well over 500 franchises. It's also known. I have not. I have not. Never heard it's of It's also known for its sportsplex, which has home to the Eastern Michigan University hockey team and a practice facility for the Detroit Thunder. And that's in right. Taylor, Michigan, just south of Dearborn. Wow, man. You're just like a walking encyclopedia over there. Man. It's awesome. Well, man, you know, it's kind of like right, right here, Joe. that's what the michiganders do they put their hand the michiganders all right man up next located in the heart of idaho's most scenic mountains this city is in northern idaho along the border with washington it was first settled in 1871 and originally called paradise valley you guys liking this voice man right my yeah man you sound good dude yeah, Almost awesome. as good as Guy Deplanche. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> hey. <laughs> We're going to let him know the oh, brother, man. Yeah. <laughs> the voice from Cali. <laughs> yeah. It was first settled in 1871 and originally called Paradise Valley. But in 1877, the postmaster renamed the city after his hometown in Pennsylvania. An abundance of commas bulbs. Do you guys know what commas bulbs are? No. I never. What are they? I would, I would think it's like a flower or something, you know, that blooms. Uh, Could you, you got me on this one, man. I'll be, so I know somebody's going to have it Googled here in a second, though, but yep. it's Chav's a, looking it up. Like it's got to be like a, some kind of, a bulb is something you plant in the ground. You know? Yeah, it's got to be in there. It's a favorite food of pigs brought by, uh, farmers. Led to naming the vicinity Hog Heaven. It is ranked among the top small art towns in America. And I know where this is because I've been through it. A buddy of mine lived in Parma, Idaho, um, right close to here. And this is Moscow, Idaho. 
Yeah, big Moscow. Big Moscow. Hey, awesome. Yeah, man. And so I went I in college, one of my best friends was from Parma, Idaho. And so we go over there and he's gonna take me pheasant hunting over in this place. And I got so excited I went out there, man, and one of them big old birds flew up and I was like, Holy jeez, man, it's like shooting a watermelon out of the sky, right? You know, I've been hunting doves my whole life, man. I was like, I got Boom, boom. I think I blew off the tail feathers of three birds before I figured out them boogers can get up and scoot. They can go. Yeah, they can move. <laughs> it's a very big optical illusion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what the fire was that? Not to mention they scare the hell out of you when they get up. Oh, that's they, crazy. They call them free-ranging chickens for a reason, you know. It's, it's a lot of fun, man. Eric. Absolutely. Hey, man, I love this part. So, uh, I don't know if you bought you guys, but I'm a big baseball nut. So, uh, yeah. I love baseball, but, uh, this town's is in Mississippi. So the big state of Mississippi and this town's located on the east side of the, the Pearl River. So right from the Mississippi, Mississippi state capital of Jackson, Mississippi. Okay. So this town's nicknamed the Pearl of the South. So it got its name from a stream called the River of Pearls. That was named by some French explorers, uh, who discovered the area back in like 1699. Uh, and each, you know, each year the town holds this, this celebration to commemorate the incorporation of the town back in 1973. So it wasn't incorporated until then. It's one of the fastest growing towns in Mississippi. And, uh, I, I've already said the name of it about three times already, but it's Pearl, Mississippi. Pearl, Mississippi. The, yeah. It's a cool town. It's about 27,000 people. And, uh, the real nice thing about it is that they're home to the, to the, um, Mississippi Braves, they call them the Embrace. So they're a double A team for, you know, our current world champion Atlanta Braves. So man, that's one reason to get down there is to watch some great minor league baseball. Absolutely. But I always like to see like who was born in that town famous. And man, let me tell you this, this place has been kicking off some great musicians. So I was a drummer. I liked to play the drums. And Tommy Aldridge was a guy that I used to love to listen to. He played for Ozzy Osbourne and just a lot of great bands. Good. But he grew up there. They've had some um, uh, Bianca Knight. She ran in the Olympics in 2012. Um, they've had some uh, guys that played for a band called Black Cat Arkansas, Jimmy Soybean Henderson. Um, they've had a bunch of – they've had some uh, NFL players, Justin Jenkins. NBA player, uh, Eric Washington, uh, Ty Tabor, who's a guitarist for King's X, you know, he's, they were, they, they were born in Pearl. It's just really interesting. Such a small town with all these famous people. So That's big shout out to Pearl, Mississippi. I hope Pearl, I get a chance to go down there. I bet you Gilbert's been there. I've been through Pearl. Yes, sir. I knew it. I knew it. I, I knew yes, it, buddy. Sir. Jackson, Pearl, all of them towns oh, yeah. around there in Mississippi, man. All have of you eaten in Pearl? Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas. I have not. I have not. I eaten in Jackson. Yes, yeah. awesome. You know, they actually used – I think I saw something where they had, you know, previously floated um, – I think it was part of Saturn Ten different phases of the rocket they had floated it down that pearl river to get it to where it did needed. they really yeah oh wow. yeah yeah yeah, yeah after that's they, super they, cool down that river it, it's amazing that such a small place but it has so much of this stuff that that you learn about it and so it's way cool man eric great job i love listening to that story man absolutely cool. 
Hey, Gil, let's see how you do after following Eric, man. <clears throat> yeah, man. <laughs> Today's last top listening city is known as the world's finest golf destination because of its luxurious resorts and spas and over 330 days of annual sunlight. And I've played golf there. Oh, and three <laughs> high-caliber golf courses, Charles Barkley, Kurt Warner and Danica Patrick are among the famous celebrities that live there. Charles also lives in Houston, by the way. The <laughs> nearby McDowell Sonoran Preserve has five major trailheads that connect more than 200 miles of desert hiking trails. With temps, they climb way over yonder of 100 plus degrees and kayaking on the lower salt river is the place to be in none other than beautiful scottsdale arizona hey, scottsdale. shout out arizona boys showing up man have y'all seen the movie of um about kurt warner that just came out i, mean, I did not i have not, not yet seen it. oh i have man. not seen it kurt warner's a class guy brother He's a, a coolest cat. Yeah. And I mean, I ran into him one time at the airport in Scottsdale. I flew in real early for a meeting and I'm there in the baggage claim looking at my phone, staring down. All of a sudden this big old guy comes standing next to me, you know, and I look up and I mean, it's like seven <laughs> o'clock in the morning. Dude, man. I'm like, Oh, Kurt Warner. I said, Oh man, dude, everybody's you're, big to Eric, bro. You're incredible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. He put me on the shoulder. We talked for a while. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, he, he cracked me up. I'm like, what are you doing up so early? He's like, well, I just flew in from New York City. So I just got kicked off of Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> I laughed and I was hilarious, but super nice guy. Just a, he's a great person. So we had a nice time. Nobody even knew who he was. Like we talked for probably 10 minutes till my luggage came and. Wishing the best, but I, I definitely want to see that movie. Yeah, oh, it's awesome. Yeah, I, I won't ruin any of it. I think you all know how it ends, but <laughs> it's really good, man. Hey, Mark, as our guest, man, here's your chance for a shout-out. Let's hear what you got. Well, I'll give a shout-out first my hometown. Uh, well, not my hometown, but where I spent – you know, most of my, most of my life growing up and hunting and hanging at Columbia, Missouri, right in the center, the MU, MU Tigers. Um, and, uh, so that would give it there, but now I'll shout out to, uh, Missoula, Montana is where I live. My wife and I, when we, so my wife actually decided that we were going to move west. She wanted me to be able to get away from our business. I've been an entrepreneur for almost as long as I've been hunting elk and, you know, when you own your own business, you can just get so wrapped up in it. And I was, and it was causing all kinds of issues with us and everything. She goes, I just want you to not work so much. And I want you to be able to do what you love to do. And so originally we were moving to Colorado and, um, we went out to Colorado and looked around and, and Colorado's really changed in the past three or four years. And we made a very quick decision without getting into too much. We made a real quick decision. That was not the place. And she goes, where do you want to go? And I'm like, how about Montana? I mean, we'd never even been in the state. It's one of the few states I hadn't hunted elk in yet. And, uh, so we flew out here. We made the, we made the tour. We went to Bozeman, Billings, Missoula, Kalispell, Whitefish area. And Missoula just seemed to be the place. Um, and we got all the rivers. So fly fishing is another one of my passions. And uh -huh. it's called, it's called the five valleys here. And we oh, have cool. 
Missoula's right on the Clark Fork River. We've got, you know, just hundreds of miles of river and the trout fishing here is just off the hook. And we got Rock Creek, which is one of the top blue ribbon trout rivers in America. And we've just, it's just great. It's a great spot and we're in a valley system. So the winters are really pretty. They call it the banana belt mm-hmm. and uh, it's pretty mild for Montana standards. Oh really? And uh so we it just we we don't get the snow. We don't get the the cold. Now we do, but not like other <laughs> parts of Montana. <laughs> yeah, don't be don't be don't be acting like we're we're sitting around here uh at the pool. But uh like, we ain't there Elders. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway it's a really great place and uh uh, if I did relocate in Montana, I'd probably move a little more east to get a little more centralized. But for now, around Great a, Falls, or I would say more around Ennis uh, okay. area. Yeah, that's kind of the elk mecca of Montana. Okay, uh, you can kind of go every direction from kind of there. And uh, so anyway, we love it here. Um, we have a great house. We got lucky. We moved here six years ago before the housing boom went nuts. Oh, nuts. And, uh, we live on a dead end road, kind of at the top of the mountain. And, um, so it's a pretty sweet place and probably here for a while. That's awesome. So let me ask you a question. Uh, where you, when you lived in Mizzou, were you Missouri or Missouri? I was going to say, yeah, Missouri. We always, I always say Missouri. (laughs) So is it the boys from the north that say Missouri? There's a lot of, I don't know. There's a lot of people I'd say Missouri. Um, but I always call it Missouri and I call, you know, I don't say pop either. I say soda and <laughs> yeah. lots of Missouri like people say pop. And, yeah. uh, so, you know, I don't we know. Say I, soda water. So I was born in Springfield, Missouri, which is a little more South, yeah. closer to, closer to Arkansas. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. maybe that had a little, had a little to do with it as well. But, right on, yeah. man. I, Okay. I fished up there at Lake Truman, and man, everybody was saying Missouri and not Missouri. Missouri. Yeah, and yeah. I'm like, I, I get corrected even from my own my own people <laughs> even correct me all the time. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's let's rock and roll this thing, man. Um, so the name of this show is Finding Elk Through E Scouting, and the first thing that you know to start this off. We might, might want to make sure that we jump right into that and define that a little bit, Mark, because people are going to say, I'm looking at a map. I'm on all these tools. Can I actually find elk e-scouting? Well, actually, I have found lots of elk using Google Earth, um, you know, physical images of elk. Um, I'm kind of surprised how often I do find them. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, multiple dozens of times I have been looking at area and I'm zooming in. I'm like, there's elk right now, right there in that freaking meadow. And now let's be honest. It's from probably 2014. Right. Uh, and it's usually in the summer, you know, so you got to keep all that. But, you know, it's always funny that, um, that, that how many times I am to do that now. Also, I will add that Google Earth particularly, has been adding a lot of 2019 imagery. Awesome. So the image quality is unbelievable cool. in those air, in those areas that have that imagery. You know, they haven't, it's not all updated, obviously. So it's kind of hit and miss wherever I don't see it that often, but when you do run across it, it's like night and day difference with the satellite photography and everything that they're using these days. So, you know, 
when you told me about this, about this podcast and the title, you know, it's the number one question I get, obviously it's, it's the number one and there's no perfect answer, but there is one answer. And I always say this, I say this all the time is I look at finding elk. It's pretty simple for me is I try to stack as many odds in my favor as possible. And in the course, I call it odds multiplication. And what I mean by that is I basically, now I have about 12 features that I look at, but it really, there's nine core elk finding features. And what I'm trying to do with most of my e-scouting work is ultimately get to the point where I'm seeing multiple prime features that are close proximity of each other. I call it clustering, the waypoint clustering. And when you start see, you start marking all these features and you start seeing groups of them or clusters of five or six, you're like, there's something special about that area. And so it's hard to just look at an area and just visualize that it has the things you're looking for. It's really working through the process of identifying all of the features and, and then it just, if you do it with a systematic way, things just start to make sense quickly. You'll start to notice that, man, there's a cluster of these prime spots over here on this, this little area over here. And there's a, you know, three or four spots over here and you can start working a hot plan or coming up with a strategy on how you're going to get in there, how you're going to hunt there, move over to here, move over to here. However, it works out, but you can kind of see what I'm talking about here is that we're making a strategy to work through these areas that are showing these clusters of, of prime features and the nine so features so we're that locating, I look, we're locating most likely where the elk are. We're not necessarily finding elk, but we're locating the areas that are most likely going to hold them. We're looking for areas that are desirable to right. elk. That doesn't mean they're going to be there. Correct. As you all know, it can be the best looking place in the world. There's Absolutely. not an elk track there. So let's just keep that in mind. Yep. But, but I have found that when you find places that have multiples of these, Rarely do I not find elk there within the general vicinity. Rarely. Um, and so real quick, we can talk about as much or more you want, but the nine that I cover in the course is access points and trail analysis. That's basically analyzing the pressure, where the pressure is coming from, how it, how the pressure interacts with the area, where all of that. That's number one. Number two, meadows and feeding zones. That was one of the questions you asked. You know, how can you tell food sources and, Stuff like that, but meadows and feeding zones is, is one feature. Canyons, creeks, and drainages. Not all canyons are created equal. Fire zones and logging areas. Sparse timber stands. Beetle kill areas. Benches and slopes. Travel corridors, saddles, and funnels. And then water and wallows. And then I count this last one as a finding feature because, and, and Joe, you talked about it with with your son on the cow elk hunt, and you said so many great things that a lot of people probably just did not catch onto was the glassing location identification. Researching and planning these glassing spots before you get in the field. It's absolutely critical. If you're hunting an area 
that is conducive to glassing. You know, right. if you're hunting, if you're hunting northern Idaho and you're in thick timber country, right. glassing is probably scratch that off the list. Right. So those are the kind of the features. Now there's a lot to each one of those, but I'm marking those types of features. And when I see multiple of those starting to develop based on a criteria, you know, within each one, um, then I start getting excited about an area. That's now, basically the way – that's just in a nutshell, that's basically the way I break it down. Yeah, you – now, when you when you say those, a lot of those automatically make sense just from what you hear. But you slip something in there that a lot of people are going, huh? And that's when you talked about not all canyons being alike. Not all Just of them like fi- all fires. All fire zones are not attracted to elk. Absolutely. But, <laughs> But when you see a fire, when you, for example, when I see a, a set of chain meadows in the flat bottom canyon on the edge of a fire zone that's got a jagged edge with a, with a couple of saddles on this, I'm like, okay, yeah. there is elk somewhere in that vicinity because I just rattled off five things in that one general vicinity. Absolutely. But just because it's a fire doesn't mean nothing to me. You could have a super steep, like for example, Montana, it burns every year. I mean, it just on fire constantly. So we have a lot of burns in Montana. And if you get a super steep area and you get a burn in it, it's going to take years and years for that to regrow. Because those steep areas do not hold the moisture. They will not produce the vegetation. So just because it's a fire doesn't mean year three it's going to be an elk mecca. Now, you get a fire in a big canyon that's big flat bottoms, got a lot of moisture. Got You could hunt elk the same year of the fire. Oh, man. I, I've hunted elk and fire happens in June. They get it out in early July. By yeah, September, yeah, early favorite. October, there's some greenery in there. Absolutely. We, we hunted and elk, so, we hunted elk four weeks later yeah. after a burn. Yeah. Four weeks there later. There you go. And I don't know what it is about burns. <clears throat> if they like eating the charcoal, I find some of these burns, they just are tracked up. Now, I don't know that they're feeding in them, mm-hmm. but they're going out in them. I yeah. think they're eating a lot of the, I've watched a lot of elk dig, like for exposed roots, the roots that get exposed in a burn and maybe they're concentrating on some of the root pulp or whatever, whatever it is. Some of those newer burns are incredibly attractive, especially if you heard what I said earlier, if it is a very sparse burn, like it burn a little patch here, burn a little patch there, burn a little patch here. It creates a lot of this mosaic. I call it mosaic pattern, not a straight edge, hard, heavy, hot burn, but a patchy burn with a lot of uh, edge environment, I get really excited about those. And so, you know, not all those features are created equal, like I just said, right. and there's certain things you're going to look for that I look for in each one of those. And if it meets those criteria and I put a waypoint on it and I start seeing clusters of those points, I start getting excited. What's your super three? My top three? Yeah. Is you got beetle kills, fires, and slopes and benches. I spend a lot of time evaluating. I hunt elk in a lot of fire zones, a lot of beetle, beetle kills are my number one. And, um, because people are scared of them. Guys are absolutely freaked out about beetle kills. Uh, it, and in the wind, uh, it could be a dangerous area, depending on It can on, be dangerous. The, it can be. Area. Yeah. And you got to judge those beetle kills 
correctly. You gotta, you gotta classify them. And it's incredibly difficult to do. The it's only way you can do it, the only way you can do it, well, I mean, going into a beetle kill with a bunch of unknowns, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. I wouldn't do it. Need so how about ground, talking right? to a biologist, game yeah. biologist? Well, there's, yeah, I, there's, you know what? I, I don't do those beetle kill areas, man. Some of them, <laughs> you know, there's going to be a point where, you know, they die off and they right. let the light in where you're going to get the growth. And there's a point where those things start to get really, really gray and things start to fall. The wind oh, starts, you know, yeah. you get, so you have different stages of that. So here, real quick, you guys got, you guys got me excited about the beetle kill. Real quick. <laughs> what I do, what I do with the beetle kill is the only tool you can use is Google Earth. Forget everything else. Forget OnX. Forget you can't do it. Can't be done. You go to Google Earth. You look at your area. You start going back in the history until you see the brown beetle kill. When you see the brown stage, you need to be within 15 years of that. 12 to 15 is your max. So let's say you saw it in 2000 and it's brown. Well, by 2021, it's on the ground. It's going to be matchsticks. It's going to be incredibly difficult. Where I, the beetle kills that I like to hunt are the beetle kills that the brown has just fallen, which is between zero and three years. Two in some cases. Spruce, depending on if it's spruce or it's pine. But once the brown drops, that's when the light comes in. And for about two or three, even four years after that, it is on fire with vegetation, on fire. Then the weeds start coming in, the invasive stuff starts kind of coming in, and it becomes, it's still desirable. Um, trees start to fall in wind events. They're not falling because of decaying wood. They're falling because they're getting blown over right. mm-hmm. at that stage, at that five to seven to ten year stage. And so, um, and then after that, it becomes a problem. So Colorado, for example, is so massively beetle killed right now that in the coming years, guys that can learn how to age and stage and classify these beetle kills are going to have a huge advantage when it comes to killing elk, a huge advantage. And so um, uh, I'm a, I'm, I, I like them because a lot of people avoid them, and the elk know it, and uh, they're in there. Now, once a beetle kill becomes so mature, there's a couple of other problems that start to happen is the sun protection is less for the elk. Elk really, there's a lot of elk that can live in the open and they adapt, but given a choice, they like the shade, they like the, they they like to be in an area where they can regulate their temperature. So now in Colorado, they're starting to adjust. I mean, they're changing, they're evolving, they're adapting. I've seen lots of studies and lots of reports where they're showing these elk in these giant beetle kills of Colorado. They're just living in them year round. They're not, they're not seeking shade. They're just living out there 12 months a year. And so there's some changing going on because of the mass numbers of acres of Colorado that have been. We have a lot of beetle kill in Montana. Wyoming has extensive beetle kill, but Colorado is kind of, kind of off the chart when it comes to beetle kills. And uh, so anyway, that was kind of a long winded, but I think that's good, good useful information Absolutely. when it comes to beat, when it comes to beetle kill. So aging and staging a beetle kill is really the key. And there's really no other way to do it. And except for looking at historical imagery and studying the dates. 
Yeah, no, I think that's awesome because, you know, when you go through all the different things that you have there, talking about those top three, you know, really kind of give a little bit of focus of like what you are really looking for. We're going to get that down a little bit more, but you already mentioned one of your tools. What are the tools that people, Google Earth is one of them, but what other tools is it that people can use when they're doing their e-scouting? Okay, so this is where I'm going to probably ruffle some feathers. So Google <laughs> Earth, Google Earth is the king of all kings. Okay, if you're not using it, you're not doing next level e scouting. I'm just going to tell you straight up. You know, now what's probably happening is you don't have Google Earth set up, you don't have the file set, you don't have the data sets, you don't have all the KML files, you don't have everything that's available for Google Earth. Like I was just working on a presentation today and I did a, I'm doing on how to set up Google Earth. There's road layers, trail layers, fire layers, timbered layers, stock, livestock grazing allotments, um, public land, private land, wilderness areas. All of these things are available for installation into Google Earth. Most people don't realize that. Right. And it certainly doesn't come that way when you download it. It's just aerial photo. Topography maps. I use four different topography layers in Google Earth. And um, the reason Google Earth is so powerful is because, number one, all of these tools that you're using in the hunt apps, you know, the fire layers and all the things that is attractive in these hunting applications, okay, is available in Google Earth if you take the time and learn how to set it up. And, and, down, and they're all free. All this stuff is free. You download it, install it. I mean, where do you think the hunt apps are getting it? Absolutely. Yeah. The people at OnX, the people at Gaia, the people at BaseMap, yeah, yeah. GoHunt, all of these services are getting the data from the sources that I'm getting them from. And in the course, I show you all of the resources for that. But anyway, once you get Google Earth set up, it's just it's the end all of eScouting. Now, with that said, I use it in conjunction with – I usually run a four-monitor system. I've got Google Earth, OnX, Gaia. Now I'm, I'm looking at Gohan a little more than I used to because they've really made a lot of inroads. Um, and I'm using all of those simultaneously when I'm doing my e-scouting work. But Google Earth is my number one. couple more reasons why. There's no hunt application out there that can even get close to the zoom resolution of Google Earth, right, yeah. to the image quality. Yeah. There's no hunt application out there that can si- stim- uh, simulate the 3D quality of Google Earth and the tilt and the rotational structure and keeping everything in focus and in resolution. So what I'm finding is that a lot of guys are using OnX, whatever, and they just have migrated to the web-based and they just do everything there now. They don't really go back to Google. Google Earth is old school. Whatever. I'm telling you that Google Earth is is my go-to number one. Now, I'll use the other ones for sure, but I always use them in conjunction. So you mentioned the tool. So I use one thing. This is where I'm going to ruffle some feathers. I talk to guys every day that say, oh, I'm a, I'm an Onyx guy. I'm like, oh, really? Um, yeah, or I'm a, oh, I'm a guy. I'm a base, I, I'm a base map influencer. I'm like, huh, okay. <laughs> So what you're telling me is when your car breaks down, you only use a screwdriver every time to fix it. No matter what the problem, you always reach for the screwdriver. 
The same tool for every job. No. Then why would you do that without cutting? Mm-hmm. You know, we spend thousands and thousands of dollars out cutting. Why would you rely on a $25 application or 99, whatever the price is for your whole freaking operation? You know, I'm a, I have a membership. I pay for my own hunting apps. Mm-hmm. I have Gaia, Onyx, the, the ones I use every day, every time, Go Hunt, Gaia, and Onyx. All the time, every time. When I go into the field, depending on where I'm going and what kind of hunt I'm doing, I will sometimes choose different apps. Like if I'm really navigating a ton of private property and I'm out in right. eastern Montana, Onyx. and I, yeah. it's really important. Onyx is my go-to. Yeah, sure. If I'm in the deep wilderness, super steep country, and I need the best topography contour intervals I can get, Gaia. I'm using Gaia. Yeah. If I'm if I need elevation bands, I'm on a bear hunt. I want to stay. I want to look at five thousand foot. I want to kind of stay in the. Then I love the elevation bands and go hunt. So and I like their new topography view. The other thing I'll mention real quick. I know we want to move on, but this stuff gets me freaking worked up. Yeah, yeah. No, it's- <laughs> so <laughs> most people don't realize this. How many times have you opened up Onyx? This is one of my pet peeves. With Onyx, I'm just going to, you know, air the dirty laundry. And I love Onyx. They're based in Missoula. <laughs> I love Onyx, guys. Don't get me yeah, wrong. I we do use them. We but use them. how many times have you opened it up and it's a freaking snow layer? The snow, snow layer. Cover, Snow-covered yeah. aerial photos. Now, they have fixed a lot of that. Since. Now, and because we're the same way, we use base map. We use Onyx. One yeah. of our favorites that we use is Fat Map. We'd love to use yeah. Fat Map, man. Yeah, uh, Fat Map. I've been, I've been playing with it. Yeah, it's a great, great tool, man. And, but, and, and you jump from one to the other for different reasons, like you said. You know, um, we're able, we're up in Colorado and we're trying to go places and you're trying to look at something and it's a snow layer. So what are you going to do? You're going to jump over to base map because you've got that downloaded on there. You know, uh, or I've already pulled it up and I need to check aspects or I'm going to my fat map to check check aspect and find myself actually where I can get from one place to another without falling off a daggum cliff, man, because of yeah. the way they do that. So you got to use the tools at hand. That's right. And, and, and so I tell guys, use the right tool for the job and right. take the time to learn the tools, like really spend some time learning all the ins and outs of the tools that you're using. Um, that's, you know, that's another one of the guys that, that things that people don't do that contributes to their failure, in my opinion. Yeah. But I have never, I never go on an elk hunt without two hunt applications right. with all the offline data and both of them with my waypoints synchronized between both of them. Never under any circumstances do I do that because I've had too many times where my offline maps didn't work well. Too many times I've had problems, and I can just jump to the other one, and I don't even miss a beat. Now, I know that takes extra time. I know it takes a little extra work. But in the end, you're going to be much better off if you take that kind of approach. Well, and, uh, and it doesn't that doesn't that go towards why we have 90% of people that aren't successful and 10% that are? You know, I mean, it's... It's about that level of work. It's about that level of time. It's about that level of proficiency, man. Those people that, that go that extra bit. So let me ask you this, Mark. So we got the tools and, and, you know, for a lot of people, man, when they're looking at that 30,000 foot view, you know, that, that can be daunting and it, 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 everything just looks the same. 
You know what I mean? What would you say is the best height distance to work at and then the best way to break down a unit once you figured that out? Okay, so the very first thing I do, like if I say unit one, and I've got a tag in unit one, or I've done my research, I've looked at harvest reports, I've read elk objective reports, I've, I've, I've decided unit one is there's a lot of elk there, there's a lot of, the bull to cow ratio is good, the harvest rate's good, the total number of hunters is acceptable, everything about unit one I'm, I'm, I'm interested in. So then what I do first is the zones – in my course, I talk about this, the zones of pressure analysis. I I mark every access point, every trailhead, every dead-end road, every single one, every campground, any place that is a takeoff point for hunters. Dead-end roads are hunter magnets. I mean freaking hunter magnets. Um, that doesn't mean I won't hunt them. just means I'm – I'm careful about it. So I mark those. And then I trace all of the roads that are open to motor vehicles. Now, when I say trace, I do this on a national forest map. I like to lay a national forest map out on the table, job one, to get a big scale picture of the whole area. I'm not looking for benches. I'm not looking for slopes. I'm not looking for good elk country. I don't care about that right now. You're going old school. All I care about in the early stages is where the hunting pressure is going to come from, how it's going to get there, and where are all the takeoff points. So I do all of the motor vehicles, and there's a lot of ways to accomplish that. I download I download the National Forest motor vehicle use map. Even if the National Forest map has it on it, I double-check it. I also double-check the times and the dates that some of those roads are open and closed. So once I do that, now I've got a network of all the roads that are open in the whole unit. I do it for the entire unit. Whether I'm hunting it or not, I do it. And then I, and then I also have pins or dots on the map for all these points, access points I told you about. Then, now this is where it ranges, but the way I do it, I do a two mile minimum of a two mile circle around every access point. I take a compass. I physically take a pencil, you know, kindergarten style yeah, compass. The old school compass. Old school yeah. compass. I draw a two mile circle around every access spot. And I draw a one mile border around every road. And then I start looking at what's left. That's when I start doing Google Earth flyovers. That's when I start looking at aerial imagery. That's when I start looking at some topo layer. I start playing around with some of these areas that do not, that are not covered in those quote concentric circles. So if I'm in a big remote area, then I'm, I may extend that circle to three miles. If I'm in a really high pressure roads everywhere, I might do a mile and then a half a mile for the roads. So don't get caught up in the exact distance that you do. It's more of working through the process because let's think about this. If it's a mile from the road only, and it's a mile from the access points, roads everywhere, the elk are going to find these little holes that are not in there. Like, Joe, you talked about that earlier. So you have to adapt your pressure zones to fit the pressure of the area. Does that make sense? If it's a roadless area, it's easy. 
um, easier, not easy, easier. Sometimes, guys, like everybody turns on the roadless layer in Onyx, right? Yeah. And it shows an orange. A color, yeah. Well, that orange blob is a hunter magnet as well because every other hunter is doing the same thing. Right. So be careful about only doing that. And it's not a real defined thing anyway. That's not always accurate anyway. Yeah, right. Because they don't account for motorcycle trails. I don't know if you knew that or not. Yeah. So when you look at a, of those roadless maps and you see that orange in Onyx and I think it's purple in Gaia, whatever, they don't account for certain motor vehicle use. They don't account for motorcycle trails and trails that are open only part of the year. So you got to be careful about that because it can be deceiving. So anyway, I break down that unit by zones of pressure first. I don't look at a feature. Now, I might fly over it just to see what it looks like and get an idea. But then I'll do the flyovers, and then I'll do flyover tours. I don't know if you guys have ever done very many of these. But I will draw a line with Google Earth on the ridgetop all through that unit, all through the places I'm interested in. I'll just draw the single line all through any area that looks good, kind of working around my zones of pressure. And then I will set my settings to very specific settings, and I will hit the play tour button. And what it does, it will tilt Zoogle or it tilts. I use 60-degree tilt, 1,000 feet from the ground, and I sit back in my chair, guys. I, I just sit back, hit the play button, and I start absorbing that area. I just, as it flies along, have you guys ever done it? That the Googler would just fly along like you're, like you're in a helicopter. And you just can look, I'll stop it, drop a waypoint, but I won't get down the rabbit hole. If I see something I want to come back to, I'll just drop a quick yellow pin, the default pin. Hit play again. And I will do that multiple, multiple times. I know that sounds like a little overkill, but you would be shocked at what you'll pick up just playing that tour three or four times. You'll be like, man, look at this over here. Well, the way this valley comes in here, look at this. I can see the edge of this fire zone here. Things just start, it just starts making sense. And what I call it is historical knowledge. You are just absorbing all of this historical knowledge. You don't even realize it. You're getting familiar with the area. You're learning the landscape. You're getting this historical knowledge. So then when you turn on the topo layers and you start zooming in, looking at contours and benches and all the features, drainages, all the things we just talked about, it all starts to make sense. It all starts to work together. Um, and I can't tell you how valuable those little steps are. And don't shortcut those. Zones of pressure, general overview, and the flyover tours are really good, solid techniques to introduce yourself to a area, especially an area that you've never been. Yeah. How do you, how do you look at trails? You know, cause you're talking about roads, but what about trailheads and different things you're seeing on the map that could be a sign about pressure? Oh, I got a whole, man, I, we could get into so many. So here's <laughs> what I do. So access points, you're going to, you're going to die when I tell you this, how I do it. So again, you can't do it any other tool. 
except Google Earth Pro. I sound like I'm selling Google Earth Pro. <laughs> Guys, it's free. It is. Um, <laughs> it's free. I get nothing. I'm just telling you, it's the key to most of the things I do. Before so you trail, talk, uh, yeah, go ahead. That, what's the difference between the Google Earth Pro and what they're doing with the Google Earth Online now? Okay, so that's a great question, Joe. So real quick, just, in a, just you know, without getting in the weeds, Google Earth Pro on the application allows you to install all of these file sets I'm telling you about. Oh, yeah. Right. Google KML's Earth on, file. now, KMLs, shapefiles, um, polygons, wave, all the stuff that you want, you pretty much have to use Google Earth Pro. Right, to be able to do that, yeah. To be able to do it. And then drop it in, right. So then the Google Earth Online, now I will pull it up. Because sometimes the online version has the best quality imagery. Yep. <laughs> now, most of the time, it's the same imagery. Mm-hmm. So, oh, I was going to say, before we go on, I don't think people realize this. Google Earth doesn't take their own photos. Did you guys know that? Probably mm-hmm. did. Yeah. Everybody thinks Google Earth got just takes photos and they got all this imagery. They don't. They buy them or they acquire them from third-party sources. Satellite companies, probably Elon Musk, who knows who. But I did it. I did a test because I had a theory that all of these hunt applications are buying their aerial photos from different sources. Well, obviously, OnX has a bunch of snow-covered layers that Base Map might not have. Fat Map certainly does may not have. So I did a screenshot of this particular trailhead with every hunting app. I had this trailhead with snow on it. I had this trailhead with five cars parked at the trailhead. I had another one with 20 cars. I had one with zero cars. I had one with – it. it was crazy. So it hit me right then that all of these different applications and these tools are obtaining their aerial photos from different sources. So that's another reason to use multiple platforms because you can get different ages or different dates of photos. Now, so um, even don't give you that date though, like, like, Google. no, none of them do. That's why you got to use Google earth. If you need to identify something particular because of date, then you got to go to Google earth. I wish they did have the date, Joe. They don't want to put the dates because they don't want you to know how old the photos are using. Yeah, otherwise re- you can use that product, right? Yeah. That's right. Cause I showed an example in the, in my class of a beetle kill. Mm-hmm. I pulled it up in Gaia. The timber's green. It's like normal forest. Pulled up in Google Earth. It's all on the ground. It's like toothpicks. If you only used Gaia, oh, and there are some awesome looking spots in there. If you only use that tool and you showed up at that trailhead, you'd be like, what the hell happened? Yeah, absolutely. But if you use multiples, you got less chance of that happening. So anyway, um, what was yeah, I? I was trailhead. We were at trailhead. Oh, so the access points. Yeah. So yeah. I pull up an access point, Aragon, and I look at it at the maximum zoom level. What am I looking at? Well, how many parking spots are there? Does it look like a Walmart parking lot or is it like just a pull off? Most guys never take the time to look at that. I pulled up this one. There's this Spanish Creek trailhead that I was interested in going in. It looked good, but I didn't like because it, it was dead end. There's a couple things I didn't like about it. I said, I'm going to pull that thing up. I pulled that thing up in Google Earth, and it's where it looked like a Walmart parking lot. <laughs> in July, there was over 100 cars parked there. 
Jeez. And I'm like, holy cow. I'm like, if I wouldn't have done that and just rolled in there, I'd have been depressed. You know, I'd been like, oh, I don't know about this spot. So what I, anyway, so I zoom in on that trailhead and I analyze it. How do I analyze it? I'm looking for horse corrals. I'm looking for parking spots. I'm looking for, uh, what kinds of cars are they, are they actual cars? Are they trucks? Are there horse trailers there? And then I start going back to the historical imagery. What does it look like in September? What does it look like in October? What does it look like in the summer? There's a lot of recreational traffic. And guys, that right there can tell you almost everything you need to know about an access spot. But those years if jump I, pretty big sometimes on some of those maps, though, don't they? What's I mean, that? Some of those years really jump, like you're trying to get. Yeah, see, and that's the thing. You never know what you're going to right. You're right, Joe. You never know what you're going to get. But here's the thing. When you're looking at a trailhead, you don't have to have that good a resolution mm-hmm. to see what kind of traffic it's getting. You know what I mean? Right. The cars might be fuzzy because you know in Google Earth, as you go back, the image quality gets less and less. Right. Because right. the cameras have gotten better, obviously. You know, technology's gotten better. So when you go back in the years, sometimes the terrain is not, it's not as usable from a terrain analysis, but it's still good for, for access points and stuff because you can still see well enough to tell is the road paved is the road gravel like when i look i look at roads when i look at a road is there a strip of grass down the middle of the road or is there no grass in the middle of the road if there's no grass in the middle of the road i know that's a busier road if i see the strip of grass i know it's kind of busy but maybe not too busy um i do the same thing for trails there i look at every trail in my area can i find the trail can i physically see it if i can't see the trail i get excited if I, if it looks like if I see a trail and there's three or four trails paralleling the same trail, I know there's either a lot of livestock in that area or it's a lot of horse packers going in there. Yeah. I, I changed an area that I've hunted in for years. I moved from a lower spot because water issues with horses, this and that. And then I got to a place where I could set a spike camp, keep a base camp down with horses. And this whole spot that I was camping on was right in a saddle. And I was always diving off this one side in this place that nobody wanted to go down because it's just nasty, but there was a lot of bulls in there. But I just happened to wander off, just walked away from the camp for a second. And this, I've probably been hunting in that spot for five or six years, but I, I walked off maybe 50 yards from where I had my spike camp. And I noticed like, well, dang, there's a trail right here. What the hell? So I said, Oh man. So I started bombing down there. I started looking on a map. Yeah, there's a trail there. It shows it, but nobody's ever, it, it's, nobody's used that thing for years. I even had to go in and put tax to try to get that thing to this day. I've never seen one person in there. We've taken a lot of bulls out of there, but nobody hunts that. They stay on that main trail, yeah. but I start looking for spots like that. But even on the map, I can't see it, but I, I mean, I can see it on a, on a, a forest map, but if I go pull it up in, uh, you know, uh, Onyx or anything, yeah. it's, it doesn't even show up. So that's why those I'm are the ones I like. Oh. That's what I look for. I, yeah. I have a whole module on trail analysis in this where I look, I show you like 10 examples of heavy use, cool. livestock use, yeah. cattle use, foot traffic. So here's the thing, guys, if you see a trail and it looks like a tiny single trail and it's brown, and you see the trail where it gets to a meadow, and then you can't see the trail mm-hmm. anymore. 
And then as you get closer to the other edge, you see the trail. That's not a livestock. That's not a horse trail. That's a, that's a, that's a person trail. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a backpacker mostly because livestock yeah. will go the same way. They'll yeah, wear yeah. it, they'll wear it down. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be a dark brown ribbon. But if you start seeing like intermittent, like you can see it a little bit here, can't see it for a while, see it again. Now, I'm, again, this isn't, this isn't a science. I'm just saying generally that means that's a, I would classify that as a medium use trail. Grinders tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Blue Collar Elk Hunting Podcast. Our goal is to share our knowledge and help you flatten that learning curve so that you too can have some of the very same incredible experiences that have given all of us here at Elk Bros a lifetime of memories. If you like what you hear or see, you can get all of this information plus so much more from our base camp elk hunting training camp, the first in a series of online courses from our Blue Collar Elk Academy. Our base camp training camp allows me to use my coaching style and share almost 40 years of elk hunting experiences successfully hunting elk on public lands as well as over 20 years guiding hunters of all ages and experience levels. This course will be like nothing you have ever experienced in concept and structure using success-based coaching techniques that will elevate your confidence and skill sets. Our camp will prepare you specifically from that final moment most in your control, those final minutes or seconds the elk is in front of you, backwards through each step and level, allowing you to see visualize, understand, and relate every coaching point to what lies ahead, the next step, the next thought process, the next success. Because, y'all, you've already been there. You know what it looks like. By tapping my 30 years of teaching and coaching experience, our camps are developed considering multiple learning modes with text, visuals, audio, as well as video. And Base Camp will benefit those new to elk hunting all the way to the 10 to 15 year vet. So if you are looking for that one thing to help you fill that tag this year, invest in the most important piece of equipment there is, you and your elk hunting knowledge. You can find the Blue Collar Elk Hunting Academy and the Base Camp Training Camp at elkbros.com. That's E-L-K-B-R-O-S dot com. Keep dreaming of the screaming, believing in achieving, and most of all, Keep grinding. And the trail Aragon, like you just said, that's a light use trail. When I can't see it at all, I love, I get real excited about that. Now, there's a reason sometimes you can't see it. It's because they don't clear it anymore and it could be exactly. a nightmare. It could be a nightmare with blowdown. But it still, it's got a burn in it and everything. Yeah, that's so exactly you gotta weigh it all it. out, but. Yeah. So I do the same thing with, you know, especially because when you were talking about it, first thing in my mind is it depends on where that trail's coming from. The easy walking spot where it's staying down in the bottom or staying where the easiest walking is and stuff like that. But I've seen trails just like that that'll come in, that'll disappear coming to a meadow that was actually angling off the, angling off the side of a slope coming down from a bench area or from a saddle that's up on the top there mm-hmm. that kind of yeah. comes in and does the same thing. And 
every now and then. Now, if it does like multiples of thick, deep, and everything like that, yeah, you might have a cattle trail that's happening there. But I've seen a lot of elk trails yeah. or game trails that Use do that will disappear into the meadow. And then they mm-hmm. find an area where they will go and then again head back up towards an area, towards another saddle, towards another bench. Or if you're seeing trails that are running on the top of ridges that, you know, that have fed from three quarter up on a, on a ridge line and end up hitting the ridge and coming down that and riding that finger trail. You can also kind of get an idea of the area where elk are actually moving and how they're moving as well. Okay, you're right. I, I look at every, every saddle in my area mm-hmm. that doesn't have tree cover. I'm always looking close at. I want to see those multiple trails going through that saddle because those are not people and they're not horse trails usually. Right. And, uh, unless it's an established trail, of course, right. but when there's not a trail on the topographic map at, of any kind and I start to see these lines like you're talking about, Joe, on the saddle, I'm like, okay, there's some, there's some activity here. Now I don't know what time of year they're doing it. I don't know any of those kinds of things. I just know that there's, that's probably, some type of game trails, you know. Now, I'll be honest with you. Game trails are not super easy to see when it's only a game trail. Yeah. And there's no horse or no foot traffic. Extremely hard to see with Google Earth Pro, even with the maximum zoom. But you can. You just got to really study it. Start looking for it. Really at the maximum zoom, almost like you're just – painstakingly picking through the, tr- the the countryside. And I don't but, even mind I don't even mind if it is a cattle trail that's running deep because elk a lot of times are going to use the path. Oh the yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um absolutely. So then let's say I see a bunch of lines that look like cattle. Mm-hmm. Well I will turn on my livestock allotment layer on Google uh, Earth and I'll see is there grazing going on? Is it sheep? i I will not hunt an area that is being grazed by sheep will not. Does that mean there could be elk there? Maybe, but they eat everything and anything. So I just don't waste my time in an area with sheep and Colorado grazes a lot of sheep. So I pay particularly close attention to sheep versus um, cattle. And then it also, this cattle allotment layer, when you click on each allotment, it tells you, how many acres? It's got the border. It tells you who's grazing it, what type of grazing is going on. Um, and then it tells you who is grazing it. So I can call the Forest Service up. It doesn't have their contact information, but I can call up the Forest Service and say, I'd like to talk to Joe B. He's grazing this allotment. I want to find out if he's got cattle in this. Can you tell me or can you give me his contact information? And it's something they kind of have to do. And you know, when you call, you somebody mentioned talking to the biologist. I never call biologists. I never call game wardens unless I have a very specific question I want an answer to. Because if you don't ask a specific question, you're going to get the same generic answer. If you call up and say, hey, I'm going to come hunt. Is there any elk there? Jeez. You're going to get the same answer. You're going to get the same answer that everybody gets. And, uh, and it's probably, and it's probably going to be pretty evasive. Um, but if you ask a very specific question like, is there cattle in this area? Is this road open? Is this road closed? Is, can I get the contact information for this guy? When's he take his cows out? When does he put them in? Um, whatever. There's a lot of great things that can be, that can be uncovered. You know, working through and looking at this pressure, it can, it can cause you 
to take other steps to pursue it a little bit more. So, and so good question. Basically what you're doing though, Mark, in, in this, and what I'm hearing is a lot of people, their focus is trying to see where elk are. And what you're kind of doing right now is eliminating area where they're most likely not going to That's be. That's right. Right? Hell so yeah. you're eliminating so that you can narrow down, which, which is That's so- a, You know what? I've never said it that way, but it really is. The first job is a process of elimination. Yeah, that's right. Correct. You know, now that does not mean, like you guys just said, you found elk two miles from a campground. Right. Well, using my technique, I might not go there. But that doesn't mean there's not elk there. Remember what I said right off the bat. The odds are against you that there's going to be elk two miles from a campground. I'm telling you straight up. The odds are against you. Does that mean they're not there? No. Does that mean you guys, you guys ran into them maybe because for the reasons you said, I listened to what you said. There was enough guys going up to that four to five mile range. There's enough guys low day hunt right from the road that it kind of caused them to be in a place they may not want to be, but it's kind of forced them to the two mile, that two mile spot. But if you started looking for two mile places from the campground and that's where you did all your elk hunting, you probably would stay as a 10% elk hunter. Yeah. I, I, it, again, you're talking to the New Mexico guys that have dealt in that situation a lot. Well, now New Mexico is a different beast. That's Absolutely. a whole different story. Absolutely. You're talking about ro- roads everywhere. Yeah. And, um, now, like we said, you can't, you got, it's hard to talk elk hunting on this level <laughs> for every state where, where one, one shoe fits everything. So what it's, we actually did though was we went to Colorado and found an area that fit what we already have. We kind of found the same attributes. It was the same type of thing with a lot of roads, uh, a lot of people that were traveling it, people that were not getting off of the roads that were going far, you know, so we were able to apply those attributes and locate areas that had it it had the thermal regulation, it had the moisture, it had the grass, it had the faces, um, and it was within an area where all these roads were going around it. So we created yeah. that kind of bowl factor there. And, and, and many some, people some, were driving by us. Yeah, yeah, many people were driving many. by us. Oh, and, it's and, just and what stuff. I said. Remember what I said about yeah. the zones of pressure? Yep. You just have to, when in, a, in an area that has a lot of pressure network, you got to Work that network. Look for those holes in that network. Yep. The holes are there. Absolutely. They may not be four miles from the nearest road, right. but the furthest you can get is you can find it if you break it down that way. Yep. And those are the honey holes in those high-pressure areas. Eric? Yeah, another thing I think you guys did, which I think is real important, too, when you're going to do scout, when you're deciding on where you're going to hunt, is you fit. I don't know how you guys are able to do it. It's really incredible because – you had Chav that had some limited mobility. You had guys like Cole that just want to bust out. Like, you know, we just want to go as far as we can. Variability level. You guys, you guys worked a lot on that to find an area that was going to hold animals at different levels of ability. ability. And, and that's yeah. real important because you can, you can find all the elk you want, pick spots out. But if you are not prepared for that kind of type, you're wasting your time. So you got to. Yeah. Use these kind of tools for that, and you guys yeah, do and, a good job. Mark talked about that. Thing we on. did a great. Yeah, go ahead, you had Joe. Yeah, yeah. Another thing we did a great job of is once we found elk, 
we got after them. You know, <laughs> we did not yeah. let up on them. Yeah, you, you know, did. We made the uh, best out of it, we man. We got after them. So, so, Mark, here's the thing, man, is you talk about all the work you do, and, and especially for these people here, and, and, and you love what you're doing there, but you've done it so long, and you've been out in the woods, and you've been out in the – you know, like I know you can drive down a road, and you can look at a hill, and you can already evaluate some things that are going on that with that hill, man, just from – the skill set that you have right now, right? right. Yeah. Right. So when you're when you're looking at a map, when you're on your Google Earth, when you're looking down at stuff like that, when you are doing that and breaking it down, what is it that you see that pops out to you most of the time that other people don't see? What are those green flags? It's funny. So, flags? Um, yeah, you made. I made a couple notes. So. Here are, here's a few things I do that I think, um, is helpful. One, I, so I'm a new spot guy. So let me just talk about that for just one second. I hunt, I try to hunt three states a year minimum. Last year I only hunted two. That's the lowest number I've, and that's because I didn't draw two tags. I thought I was going to draw for sure. More people put in than ever before this last year, and it hosed me, like, hosed me. But the year before that, I had five elk tags. So I was on, I, in five different states. Wow. I I was on the freaking move all the freaking Mm -hmm. time. And I had a pretty good year. I killed, but I only killed three out of the five. And the reason that I think that happened is because I was always on the move to the next freaking state. Right. I I didn't get to spend the time that I wanted to on each one. Right. But anyway, I'm not I'm not complaining. <laughs> um, but my point is. So what were the I, five states you hunted? I hunted New Mexico, Colorado, um, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho. And which states wow. did you not kill in? I did not kill in Idaho and Colorado. Oh wow! Oh boy! And I could have. I I mean, I could have killed. Idaho was my first hunt, and I, I did my usual, like passing up, not this. And then I realized, I don't have no Why are you doing this? You don't got no time. And so I kind of screwed myself. And then I, like, I'll come back. Well, that never – it never happened. Anyway, so – but the other thing I do is I rarely – and this is probably why I don't kill giant bulls. I have never killed a bull over 350. I've never killed a bull over 330. And, uh, I want to really bad. My, my, my best friend killed a 390 last two years ago. Uh, we've run into some giants. I shot one this year, probably 375 ish, 380 ish. Uh, it was just, oh, uh, anyway, um, in Montana, I, I rare, yes, in Montana, I wow. rarely, I rarely, rarely, rarely go back to the same spot and that probably doesn't help me, but I'm guys, I'm 56 years old. I love to see new places. I love to e-scout. I like to break new places down. And my bucket list, my elk hunting bucket list, guys, is so freaking big <laughs> that I'm never going to do it before I can't hunt anymore. So what I have to do is work this process. So what I'm saying is I rarely spend any time with boots on the ground. I can't think of the last time I went and looked at a place. I live in Montana, and I don't scout at all. 
Montana is like a state I like to hunt. I love it. But it's one of five that I spend a lot of time in. So it's just my style. It's not the best style for success. It's what I like. Okay. The other time is I, I think you guys are catching on with the maps and the zones of yeah, pressure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I spend a ridiculous amount of time looking at the big picture, absorbing the entire freaking unit. Mm-hmm. I know by the time I'm done, I know every road name. I know every mountain name. I know every trailhead name. I know everything about it. I know how to drive to everyone. I know how to move around. Before I even start looking for help, I know everything about that freaking unit. So I spend a stupid amount of time on that. I spend a lot of time, like you just said, I eliminate a lot of areas. Like the process of elimination. It's one of my starting points. I focus in on those areas outside those zones. And then I spend a lot of time with historical imagery. I talk about Google Earth a lot, I know, but I spend a lot of time with the historical imagery, how that area is changing, what the beetle kills are doing, what the fires have done, the aging, how sparse the timber is, um, the green ribbons. Are they green in June? When do they start turning brown? Do I suspect that the bottoms are still going to have moisture in September? I'm, I'm looking at all this kind of stuff. So, those are some things that, that I do right off the bat. And most guys, they want to jump in, start dropping waypoints, marking benches, marking this, marking that. And, um, and I don't really do that. Now, I think, um, I don't know who said it. Maybe Gilbert said it, but you got different hunting abilities in your groups. Okay. A lot of guys do a lot of go with their dads, go with whatever. Guys, I spend a bunch of time talking about limitations. You have to understand your limitations, your limitations of your, not yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, you do, but your group. Yeah. And you have to be brutally honest. A lot of hunters have a real problem being honest with themselves. They think that magically when they get to trailhead A, they've never hiked over five miles at home, but when they get there, they're going to be able to do 10. Mm-mm. It's like magic is going to happen between the time you leave the house and you get to trailhead. Wow, seriously, I see a couple guys. And, and, it, and it might happen on day one, but by day three, you're you're you you're toast, camp man. You so you have to set what I call in the course. You have to set a hunt parameter, and I physically do it. And there's only two ways to do it. Google Earth Pro. <laughs> I sound like a broken record. And mm. now Onyx has it. It's yep. a radius tool. Yes, right. So what I do, guys, at Trailhead A, I will draw a circle that is five miles from the trailhead. I will draw another circle that's 15 miles from the trailhead. I'm going to find all of the areas between that five and the 15 that are within, outside of those zones of pressure that we just talked about. That's my zone for llamas. And the reason that's my zone is the first five miles I'm dealing with backpack hunters. After that, very few. And between five and 15, most outfitters don't spend time in that zone. They've got to go further to get their, make their clients happy. So they're in that 12 to 15 and past range. So you talked about that by that campground with llamas. My sweet zone is five to 15 because the horse guys kind of that's not far enough and the backpack hunters is kind of too far. That's just me. 
But if I was hunting from a vehicle and I had limitations, I would draw that circle to whatever my limitations were. Does that mean when you get to trailhead A that you're not going to go beyond it? No. It just really helps when you're doing your e-scouting work. You can always see that circle. So you always have some reality in your work. Like you're not looking at points off here on freaking ridge on no man Ridge that's 14 freaking miles away and you're marking all these points and there's no way in hell you're going to get there on foot more or less get an elk out of there. So setting that hot parameter is a very good, simple, it adds realism and it has some reality to your planning. It gives you a guide. I know it sounds elementary, but these, no, all these things, work. all of these things are elementary. It's putting the whole thing, the whole package yeah. together is the key. Mark, does your radiuses change? The size of your radiuses change from trailhead to along the road going to the trailhead? Absolutely. There you go. Absolutely. Um, I'm just talking like an example from yeah. one trailhead. Right. Um, and again, once you do all this markup, you will be shocked at what kind of little pockets you'll find what kind of well look at this spot over here it's in the five to 15 mile zone but it's outside of all the other two mile circles and the one mile from the road oh, that's a nice and look at all the features it's got look at that north slope look at this canyon run there's no trail in there i like that there's no established trail now i've never so, heard you i haven't heard you say anything about elevations and slopes yeah, well, that's a whole, it's a big deal. Yeah. Slopes, slopes particularly. Elevation and depends how. on the state. Right. Guys, so it's for example. From elevation it, to elevation. So it's weird, but the environment, in, like in Montana, it took me a while to get used to this. It's a, I figured it out that it's about 4,000 feet is the difference, which is a lot. So for example, 12,000 feet, the environment or the climate or whatever you want to say, at 12,000 feet in Colorado is about the same as Montana at 8,000 feet. Makes sense. Because we don't have the 14ers. Right. Like you'll be, you have to, you have to look hard in Montana to get above 10,000 feet. Like our 6,500 is that 8,000, 8,500 in Colorado. Yeah. So you've got to learn what that kind of is. And that's a hard thing to kind of start to learn. Um, but really what you can do is start looking at tree line. So yeah, look at the tree line, tree line yeah. look at the tree line in your area, compare your tree line to Colorado. The difference in the two is about what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So in Montana, most of the time, the tree line is in that eight to 9,000 foot range. So if you kind of work it backwards like that, um, you can kind of start making some assumptions, but elevation, I don't get too wrapped up in, um, because elk change elevation for food. And a lot of times by September, guys, in, in some areas, the high country can get super dry. And just it evaporates water quicker. The water is, is, is not staying as well. The snow's been melted for a long time. And so actually the vegetation and the food sources are better mid elevation mm-hmm. than they are everybody wants to go to tree line. Let's go to el- all the elk are at tree line. Well some years, that's true. Right. In Colorado, them elk love to be at 13,000 feet. But if the food's not there, they're not there. They ain't going to be there. That's right. So, and that's a hard e-scouting thing. 
That's more of a studying of moisture content. Like Go Hunt has a great moisture table. I use a lot. Are we up in moisture or are we down in moisture in this area? Studying the moistures can give you a good idea of the high-level moisture. So that's one. Um, but two um, is I really spend time studying the food sources, you know, and what they look like on Google Earth using the historical timeline slider at different times of the year. And I just start looking at meadows. Is there a halo there? Is the is it is it is the texture change? What's the color? What's the green? I start looking at varying shades of green. We could talk about that. That's one of your last questions. But so, um, in a nutshell, I try to go as high as I can go for elk, where the vegetation is as good as it can be. Now, elk will tolerate a little bit poorer vegetation to stay at the high elevations, especially during archery season (laughs) and rifle season in Colorado. I have found that in rifle season in Colorado, there's so many hunters that the elk actually start moving back up a lot of cases in the first rifle, especially the first and second rifle seasons. When the weather's been really good the last few years in Colorado, and those freaking elk will start moving back up the mountain. And I think it's mainly from pressure, you know, and, um, but, you know, it, just working through all of that, I, I don't know if I answered that question very well, but. Yeah, no, no, it, 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 you know, what, what I'm, what I'm looking for in this section of it is, is like you said, the thir- the things that you're looking at when you're eliminating narrowing. I know you have green flags. I know you have red flags. There's some things immediately when you see something, it's like, you know, you're starting to eliminate that. And, you know, you've explained what some of that is. Some of those green flags, you've already talked about that, like some of the combined features, some of the different things with the different feed areas. Now, here's the biggest thing is in Manano, uh, I, I asked him this question the other day. When it comes to water, and I have this philosophy that when you're talking about water, that is the one feature that the animals will go the furthest sometimes or at different times a lot of times to be able to to deal with that. That of all the things of the thermal regulation, of the security, of the food, um, it, the water is the one thing that they will change what they're doing to suit the situation, right? Mm-hmm. They can go a lot farther. I know of a herd of elk that goes six miles every day to get to water and then six miles back to go to bed. So I know what those animals will do with that. But when it comes to food source, you know, uh, because Manon was talking about how when he e-scouts, you know, he's looking for food source. And my first question was, how do you do that? And and I have ways that I think that can be done as far as looking for food source. And you started to mention some of them. But let's go more in depth with that. Because we always say elk are slaves to their belly. It's all about the food. You find the cows, you're going to find the bulls. And the cows are going to be feeding where they can get the best nutrients, the best food, so that they can have a healthy calf when when they drop that booger, right? So is it possible to locate food sources e-scouting? Yes. I, I So... Now, I, in my course of researching this um, course, I did a lot of research on the basic needs of elk, and I was shocked. I thought I knew a lot about it, but when I started actually looking at the research studies, not the hunting articles, what times of year they eat forbs, what times of year they eat grass, 
I didn't even know when I first started, I did not know that elk have to almost switch food sources. Their stomachs are not capable of digesting multiple food sources at the same time. Now they'll nibble around, they'll do a little, but from the predominant food source, they kind of focus on it and then they refocus on the next food source. I kind of thought it was grass all year. You know, when I first kind of started, but it's not. There's a lot more to it. So when it comes to food, keep that in mind. At different times of the year, the elk change food sources to, one, better adapt, better adapt themselves for digestibility uh, and the availability of the food source. So, number one, before I go further, water. You know, I, I didn't talk a lot about water. You know, there's a reason. It's my least analyzed feature. Right. Now – if I'm going to New Mexico, or if I ever draw a freaking Arizona tag, tag right? um, <laughs> I'm 16 years in now, um, and still have never drawn a tag. So if I ever draw a tag in there, and even places of Utah, you know, there's some arid places in Colorado, like I mentioned the place I went to. There's a few places that I spend a great deal of time on water. But in Montana, I rarely spend any time analyzing water. Colorado, for most areas, I rarely – because like you said, the elk will go the furthest for it, and it's almost always available somewhere. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to predict that kind of thing. It's hard to e-scout for it, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not the high – doesn't mean I don't do it. It's just not high on my list unless the area requ- forces me to kind of do it. So keep that in mind. Okay, so – When it comes to food sources, this is a really good one. Um, Absolutely, you can figure some things out. It's not a science, but there's so many things that you can do. I mentioned the scenarios with the elks and the stomachs, but there are landscape situations that create the food variety that the elk needs. So what do I look for? The first thing that I look for is edge habitats, the edges. I want an area that has a lot of edge, meaning transition from fire to open, from fire to meadow, from fire to dark timber, from beetle kill to the same things. I'm looking for what they call dispersed meadows, small meadows that are that are kind of just pockets all around the timber. I'm looking for strings of meadows in the bottoms of drainages because I'm I'm really looking for on those edge environments for one thing. When I did my research, I found that 50% of the vegetation variability, meaning 50% of the variety of food in that whole area happens within 50 feet of the edge. Okay. What I mean is the, and that goes both directions. That's important to remember out into the open where the, the vegetation that grows better in the sun is more prolific and the vegetation in the timber in that transition where it gets a little sun, not that much sun is a whole different set of vegetation. So 50 feet, both sides of that edge has the most variety of vegetation. That's because of sunlight and moisture because of the shade and the shadows. That's right. Shade, shadows. Right. And all these varieties of plants can grow. The further out you go, the less desirable it is for the elk. The further in you go, the of an edge, of an edge, any kind of edge, the further in you go, the less desirable it is. 
not because there's not food, okay? It's because of the less variety. Elk like that. They really like that variety. And at certain times of year, that can be really key, especially hunting seasons, um, during those seasons when they're trying to transition food sources. So edge environments is number one. Number two is sparse timber. I look at the timber. Can I see the ground in Google Earth? Or can I not see the ground? That's important. And, and it really is, for food, it's, it's really important. And then last, I'll leave you with this, is that this is what I spend quite a bit of time on. When I see meadows, and I got these chain meadows and these canyon ranges, I zoom into those meadows, and I'm looking for some very specific things. I am looking for various shades of green. Okay, if that meadow is the same color green, I'm like, okay, nothing wrong with that. But that's telling me it's a very similar vegetation, the entire meadow. When I see dark, light, yellowish, I see all this kind of different colors that's telling me either there's multiple types of vegetation or there's multiple moisture levels going on in that meadow, okay? That's important enough. The multiple moisture levels is really good because it creates growth of different types of plants. So I look for that. I like to see various shades of green in my meadows. The other thing I like to see in my meadows is texture. When I zoom in and I see the meadow and it looks like a uh, like astroturf, that's telling me it's predominantly grass. When I see it where it looks mottled, you ever look at when it looks like it's oh, yeah. bumpy? Yeah. Like it's bump that means there's buckbrush. That means there's bushes. That means there's woody plants. Okay, in the fall seasons, elk start to transition from grasses to woody. So I love to find meadows that have that mottled look in them. The last thing I look at with meadows is I love to find meadows with halo. I call them halo effects. You look at a meadow, and around the edge, it's a different color. It looks like it's got a halo around it, around the whole perimeter. Okay, it's not that common. But when you find those meadows with that halo around them, what that's telling you is that there is an incredible variety of plants and vegetation between the edge and the middle. Remember we talked about that that variety. When it's magnified, it creates that halo effect from the aerial photo. So those are a few tips. That's a few things I look for on the food sources. When I, you know, meadows was my number one um, elk finding feature. That doesn't mean it's the top priority one. Right. It's number one because food is important, like you said. And so when I do meadow analysis, remember I talked to you about the access points, how I look for cars, I look for I do the same thing with meadows. Yeah. I zoom in, I study them. What does it look like? According to the things I just mentioned. Multiple canyons where water come down to where it's flattening out, you know, different things like that. that exactly. Kind of moisture areas, right? Well even so Man, I've seen meadows on tops of mesas that have high moisture content. If you break them down the way I just said, you don't really have to worry about it. You can tell from what you're seeing. If a meadow has a lot of vegetation in it, woody plants, it's getting moisture somewhere. Somehow it's holding moisture. If it's dry and flat and there's no modelness to it, it's like one of those dry – grass, brown grass meadows up at the alpine area. 
That doesn't mean they won't eat it. It just means it's probably not preferred. And remember what we're trying to do. We're trying to increase our odds. And the odds are kind of against us on a metal like that. I'd rather find metals that meet the criteria that I just mentioned before. Right. I don't always find them like that. That's not always a guarantee. But when I do, they definitely get a pin. They definitely get marked. I definitely make note of it. Now, the most frustrating and, and, thing is when you're looking at an area and that map that you're looking at is 2016 and you're doing that. So, but, but, but the halo effects that you're talking about really doesn't matter what year it is because a lot of times no. that halo effect is showing where you've got either concave or you got bowls or you got things sitting and areas a little higher. It comes around on the edges. So it's a- You got bushes growing. You got something going on. Yeah. Right. It's a terrain feature that's going to attract moisture in certain parts of that area. I'm more interested, not the year, Joe. Mm-hmm. In those situations, I'm more interested in the month. You know, on the date. Right. Yeah. Now, you also have to be responding, right? That's right. So, guys, I do want to say this. I have noticed in Google Earth that the imagery that's stamped on the image in the bottom right-hand corner sometimes does not match the timeline. So in Google Earth, you can see the imagery of the, the date of the imagery down on the in the toolbar on the bottom. So just double check that every now and then to where um, make sure those match. So like I'm looking at Google Earth right now, okay, and I'm dragging up, and it says nine eleven fifteen for the imagery date, and then when I go up in the toolbar, it says nine fifteen. So. Most guys, I don't know if most guys realize this or not. So when you're looking at Google Earth and you're in the historical timeline slider, it only gives you the month and the year. When you look down at the bottom toolbar where the latitude longitude is, it gives you the day, 9-11-2015. So that's good information. I'm real interested in 9-11, the middle of September. Yeah. Uh, I'm really interested in that. Versus the first or the last, not, not that it would make a decision. I just want to know it. So remember, when you're dragging through that timeline and you're zoomed in on an image, make sure you pay attention to that imagery date every now and then. You don't have to do it often because it's not off that much. But I have found cases where it's been significantly off, like they got mislabeled or or whatever happened. So just I just want to point that out. That's a cool point because uh, this year I had to move. You know, I had scouted the whole area, had to pack up, load up everything, bus camp, take off to a whole other area. It took me some days to figure it out. But there was some areas I had pinned, but looking on the map, it was a mesa on top, but I was looking for north, you know, northeast facing ridges and stuff. But the thing I'd never considered is the amount of rain that we got during July and August. I mean, it got pounded with so much rain. I was looking on the way to get to these spots. I got up on this mesa, and there was these giant junipers, and they're just hanging over. But the grasses in them were, you know, they were coming up to my waist. Yeah. That's that's where all the elk were. Now when I go back to look at this map, I'm going to start drilling back and start looking around that timeline to see if I can find that, to see if that's something that stays or whether it just – Something that happened to happen this year because of that, they were able, and I could get in there and sit in there and it was 15, 20 degrees cooler on the top with the direct sun. It was cooler than even being in the North Slope, but that's a great point about looking at that, 
latitude, longitude, look at that date, that date line there. Yeah, pay attention to those dates, guys. I mean, you know, by itself, it's not all that meaningful. But when you put it in the big picture and you start looking at, look how green that, well, yeah, that meadow looks green. What time of year is it? Is it green because it's June? Freaking everything's green. Um, it's like bear season. So what I do in bear hunting, I do the exact opposite. I go back and I'm looking, I drag back to May or even, I even go back to April, March. I'm looking for anything that's green at all in April. Did you hear that? Y'all, I've got to take a second from the show to tell you about the Enchantress call from Slayer Calls. This call, it gets you the most realistic bugles and cow calls I have ever heard from an external. Look, the folks at Slayer Calls designed this external call to act just like a human tongue. So literally, with the push of a button, anyone can use this bad boy to bring those puppies running. Look, if you struggle with diaphragm calls or you have a partner that's just not able to call, Y'all, this right here is your ticket to sucking those bulls right on in. If you want to try the Enchantress, which they're calling the Elk Slayer now, to put me in your freezer, then just use our code. It's one word, ElkBroSlay. Again, that's the code, ElkBroSlay, on SlayerCalls.com. If it's green in April, it's going to be money in May. And so... Bear hunting, I kind of reverse engineer it. And, uh, but for elk, just cause it's green, don't get excited because it might be a June image. What I, I love to find September, October, they're not a, I mean, there's a lot of them, but most of these aerial photo companies, most, except for the freaking guys that supply on X, most of these companies try not to take snow pictures. And so they do a lot of summertime, fall, photography so you don't find a lot of photos in the winter and you know like january february march april a lot because of of that factor so yeah it's good stuff man can i ask you another question um so you know your experiences because you've you you've kind of built yourself for this in a lot of ways coming from missouri hunting out west you had to do a lot of that research and a lot of our guys that come on the show you know they're they're from all over the place but what about that guy, like, like, let's just take myself. I hunted in an area. I was, you know, I was kind of a one-trick pony. I've been hunting this place forever. And I kind of think I know everything about it. What would you say to a guy like that that's thinking about this? Ah, I really don't need this stuff. Because, I, I mean, how how do you make an area you've been hunting? What would you focus on? An area you've been hunting on forever. How would you make it even better where you – you still want to get into this and not, Hey, I'm, I'm going to a new spot. I went to a new spot last year. So I really dug into it more than I ever have. But you know, what would you, what would you say to a guy like that? Like I, hey. I get this question all the time. So I'm a, I'm, I've been hunting out for 20 years. I hunt the same spots every year. What, what about this? Why would I be interested in this course? I'm like, well, do you kill an elk every single freaking year? If you do, then you don't need the course. But if you, if you go one out of four or one out of, you know, you miss a year here and there. You want to kind of work on it. You would be surprised if you reverse engineered your areas and you started back from scratch. Assume you don't know anything. Mm. You do the zones of pressure. Revert, just start from the elementary basics. 
and you do the Google Earth flyovers. You do the path. It's called a path. You use a path tool. You'd fly over that your unit, every drainage, every ridge, and you sit there five, ten times, do it. Different speeds, different angles of the camera. When you start playing around with that flyover tool, guys, you'll probably start missing days of work. <laughs> um, you'll be like, oh, this is so freaking cool. It's almost like you've got your own drone. The way these images are captured by Google, and nobody else can do it except Google Earth. Looking at it from different, all the different angles. So how many of these apps, when you start to tilt in 3D, everything starts getting fuzzy, right? Yeah. All the apps are like that because they haven't got it mastered yet. Well, quit doing the 3D in the apps. You can't do it in the field anyway. So use Google Earth. Screw the apps for 3D. They just don't they, – it's not even worth your time, in my opinion. But when you can set that viewing angle, the you can set the elevation, you can set the speed. I do not want to underestimate the power of these flyovers. So one of the things that turned me on to this was TopRut.com. They – in part of their unit analysis, they go, they trace the borders of the units and you can fly the borders. That's what turned me on yeah, to. It. Yeah, I had seen that. Yeah. You've seen that, right? That's what got me thinking. Well, if you can fly the border, then why can't I fly anywhere I want? Right. And that's when I started researching how to do it. But the settings in Google Earth do not come like when you download Google Earth, the settings are not set up to do it. Right. You have to adjust the settings correctly and draw your path, you know, using the path tool. And then you have to make sure the settings are right. And you have to start when you do your path tool, you have to start and you have to finish the way you want to fly. Does that make sense? You can't yeah. just drop yeah. random points. Yeah. So if you do all of those things, so flying your unit, like I said, just some of the basic things we talked about. Since you've been hunting this unit, you're not doing none of those. I almost guarantee it. No, I'm not. You're just going in there because you know what you're doing. You know where the elk have been historically. You've got a good toolbox. You're ready to get it on. Well, then you get there and you start adventuring. Like you said, you found the trail. You, you start doing a few things. But you might be blown away if you start thinking about it from access points. You're like, okay, I'm hunting here. Where is everybody else coming from in this unit? Where are they parking? Where are the established trails? Where are the roads? What's the buffer zones? I mean, you probably have an idea, but you probably don't have a comprehensive idea. I I think it's important too, though, as a, just something we need to put out there too is, is that when people are doing this in Google Earth and you're getting to know an area, understand that things are going to be farther and steeper than what it seems. Uh, That's where that hot parameter comes in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Guys, five miles is five miles. Right. It's not going to magically get shorter. When you, when you draw a line and it's five miles by line, it's probably going to be, it can be as much. So I don't know if you guys knew this or not either, but when you draw a line in Google Earth, guys, it does not account for the valleys and that's it's a straight a line. That's a now, that's a crow that's a line now that's not true of all tools, but that's true of all the hunting apps. But so here's the thing. I've kind of done the math on it for it to be more than 20% off. 
Okay, for example, for it to go from five miles to six miles, the train has to be incredibly steep. Okay, it has to be in that 30, probably 30 to 40% range. So if you start getting steep, steep, steep country, and you're up and down, up and down, and you're drawing a route through that, remember, it can be up to 25% further than what it seems. If it's not super steep, it's going to be close. It might be five and a half. It might be five and a quarter. It's going to be relatively close. I I have been shocked. I've done some testing. I've I've drawn lines on football fields. I just did one for a presentation. I drew a line on the on the University of Montana football field from goal line to goal line in Google Earth. Dead on 100.0 yards. Google Earth is so ridiculously accurate with its measurements tools. It's just remember the terrain thing is the is the unknown a little bit. So like you said, but guys, Five miles in the mountains and five miles in the Kansas, if you're from Kansas, is not the same. Way different. Especially at 13,000 feet. Yeah, man. Ain't no so, <laughs> and I, and I, I, you know, and I know man, there's, a, <laughs> there's a million podcasts talk about, but that's why in my course, guys, the first two modules are realities and limitations. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you of the, I've watched the progress of my course. Those are the two most skipped modules in the course. <laughs> and they're probably two of the most competitive. The know. two are the ones that they probably should not be skipping. <laughs> they, they don't uh, want to know, man. They don't know <laughs> what the realities are. Hey, guys, any questions? I just want to make one last comment, and I'll be quiet. But um, I did I did listen to some of your stuff on the Gritty podcast, and, mm. and uh Man, it's incredible what you put together. I've never seen anything like it. And, uh, but the one that you say something that really kind of drew me to the elk bro guys is this, what you've done really is, uh, what you've called it an odds multiplier. I call it maybe an opportunity multiplier. If you're not doing this stuff, you're, I mean, you're cutting, you're cutting, uh, taking all that experience. Same thing when Joe put that academy together. It's an odds, you're, it's an odds multiplier. You're taking 30 plus years of all their experience and we're seeing all the guys that have been on the show this since the hunt, you know, they've been bringing guys on and they're, they're killing animal within two to three years of their first hunt. Yeah. So I think, you know, what you're doing here is, oh yeah, it's, it's, it, it lines up. I compare what we do to somebody walking into a casino and most people say that, well, there's certain games that you're gambling. You know, you're just putting your chips down and you're spinning and you're seeing if you win, right? Right. You're waiting for Lady Luck to hit you. Well, you can either gamble or you can play games of skill. And that's the difference between rolling it at the roulette table and playing, you know, Texas Hold'em. People that, I mean, that's a skill game. It's about understanding what's going on. It's about being able to read the table. But it's all those different things. It's about pressing your odds, right? Yeah. And that's what he's talking about with this. And and I, I try to tell people that, you know, that exactly what you're trying to do is increase your opportunity. And by understanding where elk aren't that's and locating where they possibly absolutely. can be. And then evaluating and verifying with boots on the ground. You make that judgment, and then, man, if it's not there, you're moving, you're grooving, you're off to the next place. But you have a plan. And that's one thing that uh, – and, and we're, we're going to be doing some stuff in conjunction 
with Mark here, including him in with what some of the stuff that's going on in our academy, because what he's doing is helping people to locate that. That's his lane. That's that's his expertise. If you want to find out the best way to do that, well, we can tell you what we believe and where you should find out. But if you want to master that, you want to go to his academy and do this. You want to learn how to hunt elk and be more successful in closing that deal and understanding that animal and that behavior and the hunting side of it. Well, we're going to provide you that. There's things that can happen both ways with that. And and what Mark uh, has done is is he's taken what he's had to do for 20 years because when mm-hmm. you take off from Missouri and you're going to go spend so many days in one place, if you're not efficient, you're not effective, right? Oh, man, tell me about it. Yeah. And, and we're not, we're gonna, not going to talk about my success odds in the, <laughs> in the first five years of my – like I told you, I killed it out the first year, and I thought, oh, my dog's barking. I'm like, well, that was easy. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. that's nothing. That well, I had a few dry years um, figuring it out after that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. You know, when, when Joe came to me and said, Gilbert, I want you to start breaking this scouting stuff down like you're fishing a lake, right? And uh, it yeah. took on a whole different You know, that's, you, just, you know what? I'm going to steal that if you don't mind. No. Uh, that's a great analogy. Listen, man, it, it took on a whole different – thing for me because I come from a fishing background, uh fished professionally for a while. And look, it, so much about what we do on the fishing circuit is about finding where they ain't, right? Yeah. And because you in your practice that you're out there, you're covering water and you are really finding where you're not gonna catch them, right? Yeah. And and then you stumble on some things and then you really dive into why I am catching them here. But then you got to figure out how to catch the biggest ones there. Right? So elk hunting lines up with that too. I mean, you guys, you know, how we hunt as a group, you know, we're equal opportunity elk hunters. Now I'm going to tell you, Joe's going to try to kill the biggest bull that he can see, right? I get lucky and get some to come in and stuff like that. But I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to kill the first legal <laughs> elk that I get my hands on, right? Or that I can get in my oh, sights. And people say, people say, oh yeah, but as soon as you see those antlers, things go out the window and you're trying, right? <laughs> well, that's true, you know, but for us, man, the scouting part really, for me, the scouting part really took on a different thing when Joe brought it to me as, you need to look at this just like you did lakes. And man, it made it a lot easier, even to the fact of our hunt this year, I would lay in, in bed. And I would have my Google Maps on and Onyx on my phone and basement. And I'm looking. We'd never been to this place at all. Did a lot of scouting, e-scouting stuff. Like there was a lot of things that we didn't see that while we were out there with boots on the ground that I started picking up on. And then it was really something for me to see and study the places that these elk were starting to show up. And, man, I would pin it. And you could almost – Look everywhere on the map that looked exactly the same. And it's like, bingo, there's another spot. Bingo, there's another spot. And you could just go from spot to spot to spot once you understood how the mapping worked. And and then for RC and I, we hunted, uh, and Brendan, we hunted a lot together. We, finding the the ways to get there efficiently yeah. and not having to do yeah. the 10 to 12 mile hike. Root, root planning. Yeah, man. It mm-hmm. was, 
it was big, uh, big. eye opening, you know. Yeah, so it, you guys cutting this down for our listeners, you guys putting your academy together, Mark, and and cutting this down for them, just like like uh Mr. Aragon said, it is a multiplier. I mean, you're adding all of these things in that they're getting and when they head out west, it takes all of that um unknown away and now you've got a solid plan that you can go out there and then duplicate what you've seen once you're there and you look at that again every day i was going back to like you said mark looking back at where we've been what we're doing what we're finding and man that was like same thing i did fishing i did it all the time fishing i would go back look at my trails and go Man, you know, we were catching them in creek channel bends right here on North Facing Banks. And it's the same thing, you know. Absolutely. Uh, and, and you've gotten yeah. so good at it. Uh, I, and I'm not going to lie, I've been bouncing around on Google Earth while you've been talking <laughs> and trying to understand more about the Google Pro and all that. So, man, good on you, Mark. I, I, it's been awesome, dude. I, I, I don't well, have you know, any other questions other than when did you decide that this was going to be – what you really needed to do. Was it after your first hell hunting experience or after going dry a couple of spells or, or, uh, you know, when did it really no. become something so, you to dive into? So like I said, so first thing I want to say, you know, you were talking about this fishing thing is most people don't realize this too. Part of my, you know, I, I keep talking about this research. I, when I did this course, I really, I should have done this 20 years ago, but when I started looking at all the actual elk research, not hunting research, just elk habitat, there's so much out there. Yeah. And so if you take 90% of, of all of the land that can hold elk, meaning all of the land that is desirable to elk, you take 100% of that land, the elk only inhabit 10% of it. So think about that. Yep. You can have a beautiful spot that has 20 features in it and there could be zero elk. <laughs> so right. elk are where um, they are. So what you're saying, elk, you know, I always said elk are where they are. Yeah. So you got to do some things to, to increase your odds. Yep. But to answer your question. So what happened was I spent, you know, 25 years coming from Missouri to hunt, never dreamed that I had any information that I would give anybody. I mean, like I said, I'm not, I'm not, no, Ryan Lampers is one of my best friends. You guys know Ryan Lampers? Uh, no, I mean, not. Ryan is a giant. If you're not following him, you should be a stealthy hunter. The dude is the giant killer of all giant killers and just monster bulls every year, all every state. He has, he's like giant bull magnet. <laughs> and, um, that's not me. I kill lots of elk, but I don't kill very many giant ones because I kind of have – I'm a little bit like Gilbert. I I can't really let those bulls go by, and especially when I was coming from Missouri. Now, in Montana, I've got the reverse problem. In Montana, since I moved here, I've got the reverse problem. My wife's like, would you just kill one? I'm like, honey, I got so much time left in the season, and and I saw some big bulls, and then I end up with nothing. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. so, but anyway, so when I moved to Montana, I spent two years hunting here and started talking with all these Montana guys, made a lot of hunting friends. And I realized pretty damn fast that they don't do any scouting. 
they just kind of roll out in the woods and just start shooting elk. And I'm like, wow. So that ain't the way we, well, they live here. They know where the elk are. They talk to this guy, that guy, the farmer, the, you know, living in this environment is way different than coming to the environment, right? So I realized pretty quickly that I had a lot of information in my head that people might want. I didn't know what, I didn't know if anybody wanted it or not. So, you know, I got invited to speak on a few podcasts about llamas because I got all these llamas and everybody loves llamas. So I'm on some podcasts with llamas and we start talking about some elk finding features a little bit or whatever. And I start talking about Google Earth and everybody's like, what? What? You can do what? <laughs> and I'm just running down the list. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to do a couple YouTube videos. Well, kind of like this podcast, my YouTube videos were like two and three hours long. And I just got on there and just started regurgitating all this stuff. And guys were messaging me saying, Mark, I've watched this video four times. I'm like, four times? I'm like, do you have nothing going on in your life? It's three hours long. <laughs> and, and, but they were asking me a bunch of questions of stuff that wasn't in there. And I'm like, yeah, I'll do a video. And then it just kind of hit me. I said, you know what? I need to break this into smaller segments. I need to get organized. I need to write this thing like with some, like I have some sense. I need to put some thought into it. I need to research some areas that I'm weak in. I need to look at, I need to look at all these different things that I'm doing and from a, almost from an educational, um, standpoint. And then I decided, you know, a course is what I need to do. And I love Elk 101. What Corey did with Elk 101 really set the bar. And I love his course. I recommend it all the time. I just don't think it went quite far enough in the e-scouting world for me. And so I decided to just take it from where he left off and just go that way. So I decided to build a course. I built it. This course is only two years old. And I just went over 3,000 members a couple of, a uh, few weeks ago. And I've had so many success stories. Guys have sent me pictures of so many giant freaking bulls. I'm like, Jesus, dude. I'm like, I've killed, I'm 30 years. I've not killed a bull that big. And, and, and there's, and, um, just incredible stories. And, um, that's what I, I've loved the journey. So anyway, the course is actually only, it took me a year and a half to build it. And it, it's only been out there for just about two years now. Mark, uh, I, you know, where we're at right now, man, I know we got to get back and get you on again because this could have been a 10 hour deal tonight. Yeah, it could have. You know, <laughs> you gotta be careful. With, I got I gotta be careful sometimes. I get a little carried away when I get, no, like, you know, perfect. like I've been, like I've been sick, not feeling good. Yeah. Joe's been, Joe's been kind of like pressuring me every week <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I, I feel like I can do it this week, but I'm going to be honest. I wasn't all that excited and not because of you could just, I just not feeling that great today, but I'm like a new man now after two hours of talking elk hunting. I'm like, I'm ready. To, I think I'm going to East out for a couple hours before I go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you on that. I'm jumping on your course now. I'm going to be thinking of things to hit you with the next time. That okay. Oh man, that hasn't been asked. Cause you know, there, there's uh and 
you know, elk hunting is elk hunting, and where they're at is where they're at, and, and so many similarities. But there's so many things sometimes that we don't think of in other people's angles that, you know, that could really help them out there. And I'm going to – we're going to think about that. Will you come back on and join us again? Oh, I love it, dude. I mean, I – this is really – um Kind of my life's work a little bit. You know, I, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm retired for the most part. Yep. Um, I didn't, I didn't need to build the course for, to survive. Now I'm glad it's doing good. Don't get me wrong. I'm a business guy. Don't get me wrong. Sure. And as hunters, I think hunters, they've gotten so used to getting Elk Bros podcast for free. They've gotten so used to getting great. All these great resources are free. Yeah. There's no industry. There's no hobby. There's nothing you can do in the world today that you should not seek out and advance your education. Absolutely. Courses, books, um, that resources that you have to make some financial commitment to. Guys, I just paid twelve hundred and thirty no thirteen hundred and thirty-eight dollars for my special Wyoming tag today. I'm like, what the freak? Um, and so that's the most I've ever paid for an elk tag. Wow. And I, and I haven't drawn it yet. $1,300. I'm like, by the time they got all the fees in there, and I'm like. They proud so, of milk. Yeah. If you well, buy a $1,300 elk tag, and I'm not trying to sell you on my course. I don't care if you do my course. I'm just telling you the reality. You got a $1,000 elk tag. You got pickup truck you got your freaking full set of sick clothes that cost you three grand you got your bow that you spent stupid amount of money on or your rifle or, or you got the the 300 wind mag from falcor uh <laughs> you got why would you not invest in first guys before you buy the course get yourself all the best tools yeah get yourself google get all the files installed get Get Go Hunt. Get Onyx. Get a couple tools. Take your pick. You don't need all of them, but you need it. I recommend you have two hunting apps and Google Earth Pro. That's the minimum. Take your pick. Base map, fat map, whatever, whatever. I don't care. I'm not here to sell you. Mm -hmm. And then invest in Elk Pro's education. Invest in Elk 101. If you want to, if you want to do 30 hours of e-scouting, then do Treeline Academy. Whatever. Spend a little bit of your budget. To take you from a 10% to a 30, 40, 50% elk gunner. Your wife's going to be happier. Your freezer's going to be fuller and you're going to feel more accomplished than <laughs> it, it, elk. It's got a stock killing an elk once every 10 years. Absolutely, man. man. Change yeah. it. It's time to change it. Do you just archery hunt or do you rifle hunt and, uh, or all discipline? Funny you said that because when I moved here, I'd only been on one rifle hunt ever. Okay. And I'm an archery, archery guy. Yeah. But when I got here and started realizing all the seasons in Idaho and Montana, we got 11 weeks of freaking elk season here. And in Mon in Wyoming, you can do the, you can switch, you know, with the general tag, you can go from archery to rifle with the same tag and right. all these cool thing, muzzle loading. And, and so now I'm doing every, and I have a lot of time. Now, I, guys, I'm blessed. Okay, I love my, you'd say you're an archery hunter. Archery, but I'm now doing quite a bit of rifle, oh, especially cool. I told you my son cool. is 12. Yeah. So he can't quite – he's not ready for archery. Right. So we're going to be doing rifle for the next few years. That's so cool. in my course, guys, since I've been rifling now for six years, I have a whole entire late season module 
for rifle hunters. And I think you'll be shocked. Um, at the, so the tactics I use in there are very similar to my bear hunting tactics, but late season is very, very, very specific and very focused around snow levels. And understanding that is a key to late season. And, uh, so no, I'm doing a ton of rifle, mule deer, elk, bear, um, I used living to be like dream, Mark. archery. I'm an archery guy, but right. not anymore. Not Mark, anymore. Living the dream, brother. Thank well, guys, you. if you like what we're doing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. you got to go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes to review us, and you can check out more elk hunting content at elkbros.com. And just a reminder, if any of our listeners would like their questions answered on our show, just send your questions to info at elkbros.com. That's I-N-F-O at elkbros.com. And like we say down here in the Lone Star State, husbands, kiss your wives. Wives, kiss your husbands. Hug your babies. Keep your broad heads sharp and your powder dry. And we'll see you next week right here on Blue Collar Elk Hunting. Mark, thank you, buddy. We thank thank you, guys. Man. Thank awesome, you, guys. Dude. Have a good night. Man, it's practically midnight some of you guys' areas. <laughs> from all, all our right. grinders out there, here's for more music from our brother, Tony Wintrip, to close out our show. Peace, peace. Peace, guys. guys. Peace out. The man on top of the world didn't fall there. He knew how to earn his keep with a wall there. He could look anyone in the eye. Never was afraid of goodbye. His strength was unimaginable. darkest winter storm never was above the norm you gotta believe he's unstoppable and if he'd never done it he would tell you so never complain it's the way life goes the man on top of the world didn't fall there Determination on his 